0: People, please share. We got an excellent guest today. This man is no joke. He is a plethora of information. And you know I'm gonna scratch <laughs> it out of him. Plethora, is going, he's gonna let it all out, what he's been doing. And you're gonna to want to learn how to get on defected and break their chops to get your record signed. He's your guy. He's a great AR man. He's a great dad and he's a friend of mine. He's an excellent DJ too. I've played with him many times.
1: Thank you.
0: And there was a time when he was truly, truly handsome. <laughs> when he was very young, the women were lined up around the block to come to see him. <laughs> I used to always break his, his chops about that. Like, dude, uh-huh. He always dressed in the sharpest track suits in those days. And I used to see him all over London running around. And then he got officially into the record business because he was in the record business, but he was a DJ and working at a record shop. And he'll tell you all about that great stuff. We're coming close. It's 6.55 in the UK almost. Come on, y'all. Get those numbers up. Help us tell a great story today. It's a wonderful moment to have this man on. Proud to call him a friend and... I'm glad he agreed to do this. Not many feel comfortable about sitting in front of their camera and talking, by the way. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, by the way, I want to thank Karen. She got me this nice headphone Illuminati thing. (laughs) Illuminati. (laughs) This illumination setup. This is awesome. Look at this. For my birthday. Thank you, Karen. Oh, nice. I thank everybody. Also want to thank uh, Terry Brown is known as Terry Foley for the Faith magazine. Sent over from your office, because you, right. you guys are putting. Um, that's why I put up today, and I'm writing something for it. And they were also taking my DC Larue True House stories,
1: oh.
0: <laughs> and they're going to use it. Oh yeah, True oh, House wow. stories is going further and further. They're taking the whole True House stories and having it verbatim yeah. uh, typed out, send it back to me. Edit it down for around the guys you're releasing the cathedral single. And you can actually mention that as well. But yeah. thankfully I'm I'm part of the writing staff of faith. And then I have some of my heroes up there. Georgia Marauder, Donna Summer. I figured I put some mixed. I'm gonna to have Tony Prince from Mix Mag talking soon. DMC All right. cool. Tony Prince is gonna be on. You know he's got a ton of stories. Oh go yeah. And of course, I would love anyone to please contact Georgia Marauder and tell him we need him on True House Stories because he is a legend of disco and a legend of our dance music. So, yep, we're getting close, guys. Come on now. Help us. Help us. Keep sharing. I keep seeing everybody coming in. The numbers are starting to go up. It's wonderful. And Karen, God bless her shame as she's running around like crazy, sharing it everywhere. Oh, yeah. She's a She's
1: a, work, she's a good one. She's, she's a, a
0: horse. She's a working horse, man. Yeah. She is incredible.
1: Yeah.
0: Karen. I reached out to Now Rogers today. I'm waiting to see if he'll give us a green light. All right. Hopefully, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I get a kickback. I've spoken to <laughs> him many times, a few times. Maybe I'll get a knockback where they go. You're not ready yet for him. <laughs> you don't know. Um, what time is it? One fifty-seven, six fifty-seven UK.
1: Oh my You've God. been doing this a while now, Lenny, right? You've had um, quite a few
0: guests. Yeah, about ten episodes. What I did was two years ago, about a year and a half ago, I was doing it with my radio show, I would do it on Wednesdays, and then I left it alone. Mm. And then COVID came. God bless COVID. Mm. Lockdown. And it was like, let's bring it back. Let's just try it. We need to give entertainment, education. Yeah. Everybody's DJing on the internet, Facebook Live. Like, yeah. Do something a little different. Something that's going to maybe me, I can, I wasn't even thinking about standing out. Just wanted to call our friends, people we knew and have these conversations. Yeah. And thankfully, <laughs> one after another, it's been, yo, I saw this on True House Stories. I'm like, so this thing is starting to now become its own thing. Okay, cool. Yeah. So like I said, when I reached out to you, it was like, look, I'm trying it. It's, it's a homegrown tv show it's yeah zoom no product endorsements yet <laughs> no big sponsorship yet yeah. it's coming in the ground up even vegas doing it morales said yes justin said yeah everybody's been saying yes oh, right i think because they really and i keep seeing the same thing everyone says i'm very comfortable and relaxed with you doing the questions like because yeah. i ask. Like I said, there's nothing, there's no harm, there's no ill malice. This is a place of what we would do if we were at a convention hanging out. Yeah, completely. Yeah,
1: that's when we see each other, right?
0: Yeah, because people don't get a chance to hear us really talk like this. No. You know, if you come to a panel, it's 37 minutes. Amsterdam is like that, 32 minutes. Boom, boom, boom. We talk. And if you're not the host and you're just answering as a participant, you may be talking 10 or 12 minutes through the whole thing, if maximum. Yeah, you don't really know. So this gives you a full place to to speak and and take
1: it. Well, I'm, just, you know, the thing as well. It's like because um, we know each other, we're all. I'm just as interested in you, right. as you are and in you me. Because yeah. you've got. I mean, you have to. Someone's going to have to interview you doing this two house stories.
0: I need someone to make the call to me and say they want to set it up. <laughs> nobody's nobody's doing it yet. Somebody yeah, asked me, somebody some radio shows have been asking me, but the questions they ask me on radio shows is oh when you did Mystical Journey, it's never about
1: Yeah,
0: oh what happened when you worked for Bear Jones' studio when the room was empty or when you got fired from underground. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. I wanted people to ask me like those, like what was the reason why? I could tell you all, you know, but well somebody will do it. Somebody's gonna interview Yeah, you. okay. They'll get to that point. And these happen. <clears throat> oh, Ridney says he's already done it. That's why right, He did interview me. Hey, Ridney. Everybody's coming. Oh. Wow. A lot of people coming on. Excellent. Okay. It's seven o'clock. Let's do it. Okay. Welcome people around the world and dance music and all styles of music to True House Stories. I am Lenny Fontana coming out of New York City. Thank God for COVID. It's kept me locked in. <laughs> kept me quiet but yet can't keep the lid on me so it's making me come and doing it through Zoom each and every week this show is building bigger and better and I want to thank last week for Mr. Norman J.M.B.E. or should I say Sir Norman as we all know him cuz he's a wonderful gentleman and and a elder statesman and sharing his time almost 3 hours shame as he spoke this is incredible oh, wow. yeah wow. If you know if you know him yeah it's a very, it's a very quiet, you know, yeah. Norman's just like that. But anyway, thank God. And to this week, we now shift the focus on Mr. Seamus Haji, who I know as one of the best DJs from the UK. He's done countless records that we've all played. He's AR'd for some of the best dance music labels on that side, on your side of the pond in the UK. He's also picked records for me when he was working at the shops, years and years and years ago, he would give me a, a slew, he said, Lenny, I know what you need here, boom.
1: <laughs> yeah. He was also a
0: record promoter. He was also a resident DJ at the colony in London when I met him as a young lad. I just, you know, and he's just a dad. He's an AR man, remixer, producer, Dapper Don DJ, all the above. <laughs> we like to welcome Mr. Seamus Haji from the UK. Defected records, slip and slide and all. Welcome, Seamus. Thank you for lending your busy schedule and your time to us. Because when I caught you, you were on vacation. You were in between somewhere he says i'll get back to you and i'll give you the date so you finally got it yeah so right. how's things yeah. how are you doing and how's let's start with just covid what's going on right now before we start this interview how is covid been you've been handling with covid
1: well basically <clears throat> this room this is my office at home and i've just been in here you know like for five days a week um working all hours so um yeah just a and 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 Actually, I did just get into the studio recently. So I had some projects I'd started before COVID and then I was like, you know, really busting to go in and finish them. So I've just started working on some new productions and just music. That's it. Because, you know, this year gigs are out of the diary. There's no gigs this year. It's just like making music, signing music. Um, And I'm very lucky that, you know, I'm working with defective records and um, being paid a full time wage to sit here and work from home. You know.
0: So did the factory keep most of the staff or just kept a few of the skeleton? What's the story with that so far?
1: Um, well, they, they kept us all on. There were a few people furloughed initially. Um, a few people have gone from the events team, as you can imagine, because we've got no events going on. So um, there have been a, a few cutbacks. But on the whole, I mean, we've got a lot of staff, you know. I think there's still about 40 members of staff um, in the company. So, um, yeah, the, luckily, like I say, the music side has been all right. It's just the events. You know, we, we're not really aiming for anything until um, Defected Croatia next summer in August.
0: Okay. All right, so everyone, we thank him on that part. So we'll, we'll touch Defected later and, you know, we'll get all that good stuff. But let's start with the first question I ask everyone. officially. we know you have a mom and dad. We know you were created. We know you were born. <laughs> so as this young lad, from grade school to this music scene, where does it begin for you When
1: at a young age? Um, <clears throat> well, when I was really young, there was always music playing at home. Uh, to be honest, a lot of the music I was hearing growing up, I didn't really appreciate it when I was younger. And funny enough, now, as I've got older, I'm starting to appreciate it. Right. But it was music it was different music. It was like folk music. It was like Jerry Rafferty. It was Cat Stevens. It was all that kind of stuff. Um, And funnily enough, there was a record um, that I didn't realise I was hearing at the time, but there's a, a track called Was Dog a Donut by Cat Stevens. So if you know about that record, you know that it was like, what, 1976? And it's like, you know, only a few people were making electronic records at the time there was craft work doing their thing and then for some reason Jerry Rafferty this this folk producer or folk artist just had an idea to just do this bug out track on the album and I used to hear that when I was a kid I was probably about eight years old at the time and it was a few years later when Jelly Bean Benitez did a version of it I had this weird like deja vu moment like I know this I know this record you know and um so that goes back to my mum and the, and the music she was playing, which I think it influenced me. I grew up on good music. That's what I'd say. It wasn't necessarily what I got into of my own accord, which was black music. You know, Then I started to find my way and I got into soul and funk and all that stuff. But um, it, was, it was good music. It was song-based and it was good quality.
0: So we heard cats in the cradle of silver spoon. Yeah, the man in
1: the moon. (laughs) Yeah, and Jerry Rafferty, all that stuff. You know, that is great music. I just didn't really, I didn't really dig it when I was younger, but now I, I can appreciate it. Yeah. Wow,
0: that's incredible. Because everybody, everybody I interview from your side is in the same boat. UK soul, American soul, that's what was being played around that same era. You hear Motown. You hear people saying the same records. So yeah. it was interesting that it was happening the same over here, the same way. Yeah, it was a big thing when that time black music was just exploding. Motown was all over the place. Motown was all over the radio. So that was a big game changer for for someone like me listening to music. You know, in my mom's house, so I could understand what you're saying. Yeah. did you have any musical formal training, any instruments or anything?
1: No, nothing. I, I remember when I was in school, I was I always wanted to learn how to play the drums um for some reason. I never did. And I and, and looking back now, I wish I had, you know, learned how to play the piano or something, and I think it would have helped me in a lot of ways. But um no, I never did. I wish I had. Yeah.
0: When did this when did this love of disco house all this begin for you
1: the,
0: the bug of djing everything
1: oh man DJing. um the djing <clears throat> i think it well it was you know early 80s in the uk was what this is the thing so things worked differently over here i think when i was probably like 12 13 14 we had the whole hip hop and electro funk thing hit the uk so all the records that Arthur baker was making You know, Tommy Boy Records, um, you know, Hashim, Navish the Soul and all that stuff, you know, Man Parish. um, That hit the UK and that was like super exciting. So if you're a young teenager in the UK and that stuff was coming over, that was the big thing. So it was a hip hop and very much electro funk. So that's what got me excited and got me into dance music. And you either wanted to play records or do graffiti or body pop and break dance and um, just some of my close friends were already buying records and um, one of them, his older brother, had quite a, a big, what to me seemed like a big record collection. It might have been 100 records, <laughs> maybe 200 records, but it seemed amazing to me. And so he was playing me records and then then he started to play me records that were on South Soul records, like the dub mixes of things, you know, like Love Break or things like Heavy, mon- heavy Vibes, Montana Sextet and extra tees haven't been funky enough. So I started getting into the dub versions of, of these kinds of records. And, and next thing I started to try and do like pause button mixing. We used to do a lot of that stuff. So what you would do on a reel to reel, we would do it on a, a tape machine and just rewind the record and do these pause button mixes. And, and then it just led to me trying to learn how to mix two records together. So it was all very, uh primitive I had like a portable cassette machine and I had like a music center and I'd plug the microphone into the music center press record on the tape deck play a record but then I'd play a record on the cassette and I'd mix it somehow and it was all belt drive as well there was no pitch control so it was like hands-on slowing the deck down or speeding it up so I was basically from the age of about 14 I was just fascinated by the art of mixing two records together. That's what did it for me. Um, And then, and I remember getting a tape. We got this tape in 1984. I don't know, my friend got a tape from New York and it was Tony Humphreys. And it was a Kiss FM 90-minute commercial-free master mix. Right. You know, and he was playing things like Houdini Friends and um, Shango, Um you know, Cremsical, No News is Good News, Jelly Bean, The Mexican. So it was very much like Latin freestyle, um, like hip hop, electro soul. Yeah, it was all that stuff and electro funk and he was mixing his stuff up. And again, I was just, um, I could I just was amazed at the way he was mixing records for two or three minutes. And that's what I wanted to do. And I, and then by 1985, when I was like 16, um, yeah, I got DJing on the, on the London sound system scene. So I was playing with Norman Jay. So Norman Jay was, um, he had good times, Roadshow, and there were other big sound systems. So what, what it was in the UK in the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s, we had all these um, reggae sound systems. So like Norman Jay, you know, his brother Joey had a reggae sound system. And reggae was really popular at a point. And at some point in the 80s, people wanted to start to hear other kinds of music and they wanted to hear soul music and a lot of the reggae sound system turned into soul sound systems
0: so so let me ask this question yeah the demographic is english we know but what's the cultures that were in front of you guys with the dub sound system and you're doing what was the crowd like
1: oh it was a black crowd all black all black all, i mean when i went to school i'm I got in with black guys because I went to when I went to secondary school, I just remember meeting this one black guy at the bus stop who I knew vaguely. We'd played football together once. And um, went to school with him. And next thing I know, at lunchtime, I'm with this guy and then some other guys that he knew. So I was there at lunchtime hanging out, I don't know, with about eight black guys. I'd never even hung out with black guys before, but it just happened. And then I started hearing the music they were playing, which was like a lot of dub reggae or soul um and I, I that's what got me into the music and when i started playing with the sound systems there were a few you know you get a few white guys there you get some white girls but it was a very black scene the whole sound system scene you know and good times were a big sound system there was rap attack there was mastermind and and you'd, you'd have like these illegal parties and um and the, the way that i got into djing I never wanted to be a DJ. I never planned to be a DJ. I just like mixing and scratching records. Right. And by the mid eighties, I was mixing, um, soul with hip hop and stuff like that. And so did
0: you have a, did you have a code name like scratch Master Oh yeah.
1: I was called slick DJ slick. I just thought the name Seamus was ridiculous. And I thought the name Seamus Hardy was even more ridiculous. So I was like DJ slick. And I was like 16, probably had about, I don't know, 50 records. And What was your gear? Give us your gear.
0: What was your gear? What trainers were you wearing? Shell tops? What were you wearing?
1: Come on. Well, back then it would. well, we were, what we were then, I don't know if you've heard this term, Lenny, but we probably would have been called casuals.
0: No, I never heard it like that. Well, what's casuals mean?
1: So casuals is, um, it came from the football scene. So all the football, a lot of the, basically, the, I wasn't a football hooligan, but a lot of the guys that were in the sort of football firms, the guys that went to the football matches, but not to watch football, they went to fight the other firms. That's crazy. And they were quite naughty, right? So they'd go to all the away games abroad. And what they would do is they would nick clothes. They'd nick sportswear. So they'd be nicking like Fiat, Fiat, um, Fila, um, you know, Sergio Tashini, all this stuff, right? They'd be nicking it. Coming back to the UK and wearing all this stuff, and it was casual wear. It was either your know, Pringle jumpers or Fred Perry's or the stuff from abroad. So it was it was all casual wear. So they were called casuals. So we would have been. They were the kind of clothes that we wore, um, and it would have been yeah, maybe night trainers, and it would have been angle. No, 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 not Don't that. No Run D M C look. No <laughs> okay. angle. No God, no, no. Um, Okay. But anyway, we went to we went to this party and it was in a, it was an illegal house party, literally where I grew up in Camberwell. And um, there was these older black guys, you know, in the mid twenties. I was like sixteen, and they had Technics decks, which I didn't own. I never touched one in my life. I couldn't afford them. And um, they were back then. A lot of the DJs in the eighties couldn't mix, so they would just blend with the crossfade and it would be all completely out of time. So my friends went up to them and said, "Listen, our friend." I'll make a mix of Scratch. Can you let, can you let him on? And um, they had these boxes of records, and I went through the records. And I, I saw some records I didn't own, but I saw this one record called Maze. Oh, the band was Maze, who we all know. there's a track called Twilight. It was like an instrumental club track, kind of mid-tempo. I thought, oh, that's instrumental. I pulled that out, and then I kept going through. And then I saw SOS Band, Just Be Good To Me, the acapella. I thought, oh, there's an acapella. I never mixed these two records together at all. I put one on, put the acapella on, and I sort of, I, 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 even then I was struggling to get the acapella in time, but what I was doing was I was cutting and scratching this acapella. And these guys were just amazed because they couldn't mix and they hadn't seen this sort of thing before. And then they took my number, and the next thing I know, I, do, I joined the sound system. And then we were playing in front of, like, 2,000 people at one of these big... Um, all days of the century, that's what it used to call them. And uh, Aswad had been performing, big PAs were on, and um, and then I had to go on and mix and scratch. I had to operate for the sound system for like an hour, and my hand was shaking. Um, my hands have never shaked since. That's the only time i see my hand shake. Um, but it went well, and I did my thing, and that was how I got into DJing. So I never planned to be a DJ. It was just because of my friends who pushed me into it.
0: So DJ Slick was born.
1: DJ Slick, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how long? You know, did, all so my records from no signed. They all they all say Slick on them. So, so, how
0: long, so how long did Slick keep that Slick sound kicking?
1: Uh about two years. Two years, you know. And they were really fun times. I mean, just to give you an idea of what was going on, because Norman Jay was playing on a similar scene. So, so we would have been playing soul records, and we would have played. James Brown stuff like that, but there was also we didn't know about it at the time, but we were playing records like Serious Intention, You Don't Know, or Russ Brown Got to Find a Way, or Strafe Set It Off, or Colonel Abrams Music's the Answer. We didn't know about this music that was going to come out. To us, it was just it was like up tempo R and B, right? And now we look back and think, oh, that was that's what led to garage and house, basically. But we just didn't know that at the time. And I guess the stuff was going on in New York at the time and there was stuff going on in Chicago, but we weren't aware of it. So it was just before house music had hit the UK, you know?
0: Wow. Yeah, because yeah. at that same time, you got to realise Jellybean in New York was playing at the Funhouse. A lot of us were playing that music. It was all intertwined. For example, like hip-hop, bebop, Man Parish, all those records were going yeah. on at the same time. We were all playing that. Yeah. Electro, you guys are calling electro, we're just calling it dance music. We're not calling it electro. That, I oh it really? No, we never called it electro over here. I don't remember hearing that called
1: That was what, just, what we Yeah, it was Electro Funk in the UK. We
0: called it buggers music because the buggers at Funhouse who danced, these used up-rocking yeah. records that, that were anthems at that particular club, you know, with Jelly Bean or right. Tony Smith. Then, you know, Larry LeVan was playing some of that stuff. Yeah. But, some of the more the blacker records where Jelly <laughs> wouldn't play them. But House had a big following. It was basically a bridge and tunnel crowd of uh, Latino and Italian mixed with some of the uptown Manhattan crowd. So right. it didn't have many black kids in there. It was more of a Spanish and Italian and neighborhoody, you know, very hoodie feel. Like, you know, we yeah. knew each other from the neighborhoods. Yeah. And they were bad on the dance floor. It was crazy. So I can understand all that, what yeah. was going on in New York was going on in the UK a little differently. So it's interesting to hear that perspective. Wow. So from slick to the big sound systems, mm. where does it take this? Where do you go from there?
1: Um, then I, around that time, um, I started working in a record shop in Campbell. funny enough. Um, and um, that kind of, around that time, I, I, I wasn't really thinking about working in the industry, but it, like um, I liked working in a record shop. You know, I'd, I'd been at I'd been at college, and the idea was I was going to go on to do graphic design uh, and do a degree and all this sort of stuff. And I was doing a level art, but I was already DJing. I was working part time in a shop, and I just kind of lost interest in that side of it, right? And so um, I went to work full time at a record shop called Red Records in um in Soho and the way that I got the job was I went to work in the shop the, the, there was a branch in Brixton um this was around 1989 and um I knew the guy that ran it because he used to be in a sound system so we used to DJ together like back in the day so I knew him went to work there they didn't have any places he said listen there's that we need somebody in the West End shop the West End shop was the shop that was the place to be um where exactly was that shop? Do you remember the address of where that shop was? I think it was Beak Street. Yeah. Beak Street. Um, in Soho. And at the time, there's a guy called Abby Shaw that was running the shop. Oh, yeah. Used, used to run Bluebird. Um, Trevor Nelson was working there. Right. This is. And he was obviously really well known. This is before FN went legal. um, Ricky Morrison was there. He we went on to do M&S Productions. Another guy, Jeremy Newell, who was really well-known. Um, Lloyd Daddybug, he was on Kiss FM. He, went to, he became an A&R at EMI at some point. Um, so like a really strong team of people. And then I, I worked there. So that was how. And then I started to get an insight into the industry, basically, because um, just like everybody, would, you know, you're in the West End. Everyone, You know, Pete Tong would come in there. Andrew Weverall would come in there norman jay would come in there just everybody came to that shop just because who the people that were there and there were other shops in the west end as well And they all had their clientele but you know it was just a good insight and also it, i became aware of um the value in promos you know that was the big deal if you worked in a record shop it was all about getting really upfront music and the djs who came in wanted that really upfront music so Having that connection to the record labels is really important because an A r guy could come in there with fifty copies of a record and you'd be like fantastic we've got all these promos, none of the other shops have got them, and then he would normally trade that for you know new records so he 's just doing his a r trying to be aware of what's out there and then we get a load of promos and at some point, I started wondering about being that guy at the record label like, I wonder what's you know what it's like to to sign records and had that kind of influence. So it started putting the idea in my head, you know?
0: Right. And who, who's the first record company that you stepped to, or should I say maybe on the outside? Cause I remember back in the day, a lot of our friends were working at the shops and what they were doing is like, we called junior A&Ring. Remember that? Yeah, 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 yeah. So so they <laughs> were junior a junior and So you're looking yeah. for records on the outside and you're bringing them into the labels. So yeah. were you doing any junior A or you were invited corporate level right away? What What was that? How did that transpire?
1: Um, so, funnily enough, when I was at, um, there was a point when Abby and Ricky and those guys they went to set up a record shop called Catch a Groove, right? Yes. yes. And I think that was around '92, and by about '93, '94, something like that. Um, I went to work there part time. And um, that was like a kick, that was a shop. Every, that was a kick art shop. Everybody was going there, right? Um, we all went, we all went. And whenever we came into town, everybody stopped to catch a group. Yeah, that was a shop. And Ricky lived above the shop. And then, like, you know, if Benji Candelario flew into town or Danny Buda Morales and they needed to put their head down for a bit, they'd go into Ricky's yeah. bedroom and <laughs> yeah. sleep for a bit, right? <laughs> and, um it was, quite, family, it was quite, it was great.
0: That's some family stuff there. That's what I'm yeah, talking it was, about. <laughs> And it was,
1: and that was a lot of um, connections were made that way, you know. So um, we were getting a lot of music, you know, like especially then it was around 94, 95. Uh, 94, I started my residency at the satellite club. That was at the Coliseum. Um, that was promoted. Brum- the colony but, before, excuse me. The colony yeah, before. the Coliseum. <clears throat> so I was res- I'd got a residency there. And I'd um, and got a residency there in a really weird way, right? There was, a, there was a club night called Peach in London, promoted by Kiss FM, which was like a sort of quite a banging UK house night. But they had a second room that was for more chilled out music, but they didn't have a DJ for it. And the girl that was promoting it, a girl called Nikki Smith, um, she used to play my cassettes in that room all night long. I had these mixtapes, which I used to sell, in the shop. So they were selling different record shops around town. She would just play my mixtapes. Right. So she said, and I went in the club once. She said, look, all these people are dancing to your mixtapes. She said, right, I'm going to open another club night. And when I do, I'm going to make you the resident in the second room. Um, So I was already doing that. So I was DJing. I'd I'd started writing for magazines as well. You know, like I was writing for music mag at the time and I'd, I'd covered other people, Writing for magazines like DJ Mag and Touch Magazine again because I knew it was a good way of getting promos. You know, it was like, oh, I'll get loads of music up front, which is great if you're a DJ, right? So, I was making all these little connections, um, and I'd already and I'd started messing around in the studio making music. And I'll tell you one thing: it was funny though. I went <laughs> there's a guy called Mel, um, who owns Champion Records, right in the UK who've been going for a long time and from signing hip hop in the mid 80s. And obviously their big record was um, Robin S, Show Me Love. And they're still running today. And they've got Mad House, which is a um, Kerry Chandler's offshoot that goes through them. Um, I think he came into, he came into uh, Catch a Groove. This is around 94. And he said, um, oh, come and see him in the office. So I went to see him and he was basically offering me a junior A&R role. Right. Because he's like, you're DJing, reviewing for magazines, you work in the shop part-time. So I said, okay, I'll come see him. But then over the course of the weekend or whatever at Catch a Groove, <clears throat> they had to make a little cutback on staff, right? And I was last in and first one out. So they said, look, we've got to let you go because we've just got too many staff or whatever. So I said, okay. So I went to see Mel and, um, and yeah, we had a chat, but he just said, oh, I can't take you on there because I heard you're not in the record shop anymore. <clears throat> it was just cold, and I was like, Oh okay, fair enough, so that was the first time when i didn't I didn't look for it, but somebody had shown interest in me, you know um and then I went from there I went to work for um uptown records, which I think is when you and I met no I met, no I met you no I met
0: oh, you. no know, it was satellite
1: club we met yeah we met, okay, sorry. Yeah, we met before. That was it. They're Gary up,
0: Dillon, I Gary Dillon. I sat with you in Gary's office and released the pressure.
1: Released the pressure, that's early, right. When,
0: half was there in them in the early 90s, and I sat with you and talked. That's yes. when I officially met you. But in I the played basement. with you already a few times already.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah, sorry. Yeah, it was right. Catch a groove closed down. They opened not released the groove. Um. And same thing happened there, right? I mean, it must be me. I was there part-time. <laughs> and be the closer. You're the closer <laughs> of the place. <laughs> Wait, wait, wait.
0: Hold on. No, wait, wait. Wait, wait. Let's make sure we clip this right. In quotations, you bring Seamus, he closes up the place.
1: Yeah. No, okay, well, sorry. So the story. A- Abby said to me, oh, you know, because <clears throat> he was it. there's somebody else who's there part-time. I don't know what it was, but he just said, look, I've got too many members of staff. I'm going to have to let you go. I said, okay. So I went to Uptown and then I went to work there full-time and I was like assistant manager and, um, Everything was going well, you know, I was, Saturday, I was playing the Saturday Club every weekend, so my name was on Kiss FM all the time. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Um, Tonight, a, Saturday night, shameless yeah, party. Yeah, and, and everyone was playing there, you know, like, so we had, you know, like, you would have played there, and like, Hector Romero, and Ted Patterson, and um, we had the UK DJs like Paul Trouble Anderson, and Bobby and Steve, we basically had everyone played there, apart from maybe the top four or five names, like, you know. We, just, we couldn't afford them at the time you know it was louis vega or morales um because we had a bit of a cat's budget but everybody came there and played at the club and it was a great um yeah it was a great night great crowd um and i was making records so i did this record called race of survival um which i know you like um and that was like there was a big buzz on that record tell it me the story me. of
0: that record what who who's involved and what label was it again? And what what how that transpired for you? Because that's one of the first things I remember seeing. Yeah. Like, wow, this really well, now it took you from just being the DJ now to being a producer-driven DJ. Yeah.
1: So, um, all right, all right. So this is how it happened, right? So, Nikki Smith was the the lady that promoted the Satellite Club. She had a friend who worked at Polydor, and manifest was it Manifesto Polydor anyway? Yeah, it was Polydor. So she had a friend, female friend, and the female friend had a boyfriend who was Steve McCutcheon, otherwise known as Steve Mack. Not Steve Mack Roommasters, but Steve Mack, as in, does everything for Simon Cowell, is one of the most successful producers in the UK today, right, on a pop level. Um, So she said, "Um, why don't we get you two together? So this is around 93. He'd already made some dance records, right? He did a version of. Never let us slip away the Andrew Gold record, um, under this name Undercover with another DJ, this guy called John Jules, who's a soul DJ. Uh, nice guy,
0: nice guy, yeah,
1: really lovely guy, right? Very don't good. know how that came about. There was John Jules, there was Steve Mack, and I think another guy called Darren Pierce, who was like a UK house DJ, and um, <clears throat> and he did some other stuff as Gems for Gem, which again was I think he did it with Darren Pierce, so Steve Mack. Had this dance side to him, but he also could do the, the pop stuff. So I went in the studio and he was just starting to produce boy bands because he went on produ- to produce Westlife and all this stuff. He did some, you know, he's made, he's done really well. But he was producing this, um, this German boy band, right? Like three white German guys. And I've got in the studio to meet him and there was a black guy in the booth. I don't know if it was Wayne, is it Wayne Hector? There's a guy that he co-writes with. He was in the booth singing, and I, he said, oh, I'm producing these guys. He showed me the picture. And I said, like, he doesn't look like one of the members of the band, but <clears throat> what he was doing what they did a lot, with a lot of that pop boy band music is they get a bit of soul in there with the, the backing vocals, yeah? So this guy was adding that vocal. And so basically what like, oh,
0: he's right. doing, he's thickening it up and making it sound plush, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. It yeah. That, giving it that finish, yeah soul sound yeah which you wouldn't know about you won't know was, that, right? <laughs> yeah i was like oh, that's interesting and then another time i remember going to the studio and there was this other black guy in the studio in the, in the booth and i said who's that he said the guy called stephen granville and i knew the name stephen granville because he made a record with booker t on azuli i think he did a cover version of um um sylvester's you know you make me feel mighty real so I knew the name, and I was like, oh, right, yeah, I know it. this guy can sing. I was like, oh, that's interesting. And I just kind of uh, earmarked it, I suppose. So then Steve said to me, listen, why don't we get the ball rolling? And he said, well, I've got this remix I want to do, right? I think it was Lindy Layton or someone like that, King Candy Dolphin or someone, one of these little UK pop singers. And we went in to do this remix, and I had like an MPC-60. So I brought my MPC-60 in. I was like programming my beats on it. And I was really influenced by, obviously, Kenny Dope. Roger Sanchez, these guys at the time, and um got some beats going. And then I just was, you know, typical DJ with a box of records going, Well, I like this and I like this sound and I like these chords. And it was all very it was kind of influenced by CJ McIntosh, I think master work, a bit of Roger Sanchez at the time. So we did this track and we had a vocal, and he just turned around and he said, This is really good. He said, This is actually too good to give away. Why don't we keep it as an instrumental? And I was like, all right, okay. And then I went, oh, yeah, all right. What about that um, that guy, Stephen Groenville? Why don't we give it to him? Gave it to Stephen Grenville, and he wrote Race of Survival, which is grammatically incorrect, because it should be race for survival, right? Not race of survival. We didn't think about it at the time, but it's race of survival. Sounds good, it. No? Sounds yeah.
0: good. I never questioned the grammatics of it ever.
1: Grammatically incorrect. So he wrote that song. And we were like, he must have sent me on a little cassette, and we listened to thought, the hell, this is really good. He was like, <clears throat> I'm not being funny, he's like Byron Stingley, and I would go as far to say, is possibly a better singer, right? I don't want to get any flack for that because I love Byron Stingley, but he was in that range falsetto, but just he is really bloody good. So, anyway, we got him in, and um. Steve Mack helped him out, but there was a little bit we changed on a, a bridge or something. But basically, the song was there. Did the song, and then at the time, it was like you know, I was de- I was DJing when you met me. I wasn't even DJing as Seamus Hardy, <laughs> my name, my DJ name was just Seamus. That's right.
0: I'm sorry, I'm sorry. yeah,
1: it's right. Yeah. Sheamus. It was just Seamus, right? So, because there I'm was no one else. That. There was no one else DJing just as Seamus. So where's um,
0: the name Seamus come from? What's the background of Seamus Haji? My
1: mother's Irish. Okay. That's a very Irish name. I mean, either old men or dogs are called Seamus, basically. You don't hear many. (laughs) That's it, right? And my dad is, he's Indian-Iranian, but basically Haji is a Muslim name. So that's where that comes from. So it's a real mixture. I'm waiting to meet a Muhammad O'Reilly because that might be the equivalent My name
0: (laughs) the
1: other way around. Gotcha. So what I'm trying to say is that we just didn't think it would be cool to put out as Seamus and Steve. So we we came up with this name of Sons of Soul. And I wanted to sign the record to, I don't know, like a strictly rhythm or somebody like that. The problem is I'd made the record in Steve's studio. So it was kind of like technically he was saying, Well, look, I want to put out on my label. And he had this little label, well, I think he started a new label called Rockstone. Um, so it was kind of like, it went out on his label and wasn't really what I wanted to do, but that's kind of how it went. And then it didn't come out. This record didn't come out for a year, right? Which was really good. It didn't come out for a year because the guy that was Stephen Granville was managed by somebody and his management were basically, uh, in disagreement about the publishing splits. And this went on for about a year, right? Believe it or not. And what I did is <clears throat> I cut two acetates and I posted one to Tony Humphreys and then I gave the, I handed the other one to Paul Trevor Anderson. So they were, and these were 12 inch acetates, and I put a note on there explaining stuff and whatever, like what it was, da da da. da. So I'm not joking, but those two DJs, they were probably the only two DJs who had it apart from me, for a, not a year, but I'd say for about <clears throat> six to eight months and they played it religiously and then i started giving to a few other people like bobby and steve and a few friends and whatever um and it just built this buzz there was just this buzz about the record because you couldn't get it you know and it was like that those days not like now you hear something and it's out the next week um but it was that thing about having on acetate and you couldn't get hold of it so it came out it sold. it did probably sold about six thousand copies at the time and i remember <clears throat> Frankie Knuckles picked up on it and he put it on a, a Ministry of Sound sessions comp, which was quite a big deal back then. So it kind of came out and it he did his thing, but I'd wished it personally, I wished it had come out on a different label, you know. But it was a great record and it was a great record to be involved in because it just showed me the process of making a record from start to finish. And that also working in a team where you're like, I'm a DJ, or right, I can program beats, but I can't play the piano. Steve McCann and we had a really good engineer and it and a great singer and the song was written so it just I got into it fast tracked me into that world of making a record with a really good team of people
0: so so basically as we all say now you're thrown in head first and you learn re- real fast on how to the process because it just un, it just develops as you're going you know yeah. this one is doing that this one's doing that but how important was Tony Humphreys and Trouble? Oh. Tell, Pique, explain just that just to people. Novel. The Kiss the yeah. to Mix. What the hell was that like back um, in that
1: time? Well, you know, like I... Both of them on Kiss,
0: America and England.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, being in the UK, around when I heard that mixtape, as I say, that was around 1984. Um, I hadn't really heard mixing like that before. Um it was just so smooth, smooth blending. I mean, there was one guy in the UK called Froggy who was a bit before my time because he was very much in the late 70s, very early 80s. He was really good technically as well. Um, and, and and I think when um, years down the line, when Tony was like, you know, the man on the house scene, it's just the fact that he had so much upfront music and you weren't going to be able to get your hands on it for a very long time. You know, Paul Truman Anderson, the same, like, people would come and play, people would come and play the lot with him, obviously give him, ac- give him dats. He would cut acetates and be playing stuff for months and months before it came out, sometimes a year. And it was just that exclusivity where it's good, really good music. And it's like, you can't get to hear this unless you hear that DJ play it. So it was enormously uh, influential. I remember when he had, um, when he was on, when Trouble was on Kiss and he, he was playing um, My Desire by Mira produced by Blaze, you know, and it was just him playing that. And then funnily enough, because we you were asking yeah. about how I got to work at record labels, and I told you about the the way it didn't work out with Champion. Um but when I got to work for Slip and Slide, it was just weird because I got the job and I inherited that record. So they'd already signed it and I i, I got to work there and um and then we signed it to to Virgin. And that record got signed because of Paul Shaw Lanson. You know,
0: on the strength of him playing it every week, we yeah, lived.
1: yeah, he was just breaking, you know, that was like properly breaking records. Same with Tony Humphreys. Um, so it was from an AR point of view, it was really important, and um, yeah, just like getting back to what you were saying about um how I got into the industry, and I kind of went off then because I was just talking about making records and stuff. Um, I was—I guess what I was doing was I was ticking all these boxes of things that I was doing, and I didn't think about going to work for a record label. And then by about 1998, when I was at Uptown Records, um, Jim Ingle, who was the A&R at Slip and Slide, who'd signed the Lacy Hideaway, that was just this New Jersey garage record. Um, I think it was on Freddie Shannon, Freddie Shannon's um, Shelter label, or was it? I can't remember the label was on. But he signed that and he got De Lacy to remix it um, and went and it got signed to deconstruction. And um, because of that, he got poached by R&S. And when he went, to, went for R&S, um, he would have spoke. He basically spoke to Peter Harris and just said, look, I think you should get Seamus for the job to come and be A&R label manager at Slip and Slide, right? I had no idea. But when I used to do my reviews for um, Music Mag, um, there were two labels that were my favourite labels, right? So within the major label group would have been A&PM, because Simon Dunmore was there, and he just signed really good American house music, and um, Slip and Slide, when it came to UK independence. So there was my favourite UK major that was A&PM. My favourite UK independent was Slip and Slide, because they just signed great music. So I was always giving them great reviews. And <clears throat> I was DJing at the Satellite Club and then also, yeah, done that Sons of Soul record and I was doing some other bits for cult records. Um in the US, I did a, a version of Go Bang, um, which was like did really well. So, you know, I was ticking all these boxes and then um uh, Peter Harris, the guys that slipped inside, someone rang me and said, Look, can you we just want to pick your brains, you want to come in for a chat? So I went to Labbrook Grove to slip and slide and we were having a chat and they were just asking questions. And then, uh, in, this is one afternoon I went home and then that evening I got a call from Peter saying, you've got the job. And I said, what job? He said, well, we want you to be the a and label manager at slip and slide. Jim Ingle's leaving. And I'm like, I had no idea about that. I wasn't trying to get the job. I went around to his house that evening and, um, we're having a little chat and that was it. So that was like, 1990. It was a really pivotal time. It was the beginning of 1998. It was like literally the end of the year, and I mean, I, and I just turned 30, so you know, I wasn't like a spring chicken. I wasn't like early 20s. I was like I'd been around for a while, and I, I didn't really know what I was. Oh, I didn't have any plan. I was just like making music, DJing. I just loved doing what I was doing. You know, I was working in a record shop at the time, <clears throat> and um, so I had no real. I never. You know, I didn't sort of think, right, I've got a career path in mind. But it, do you know what I mean? It just kind of a- happened accidentally. It was somebody else saying, you might be good for the job.
0: So you by, by accident, it's found you. Now you're in the seat.
1: Okay. Yeah. So where do you begin? So I began by, well, it was mad, right? Because to, to when you were signing music back then, you are either going around the record shops and trying to pick up some sort of unsigned white label, or you might look at a, like a US record, like the, the Lacey Hideaway and think, oh, it's come out, it's done its thing, let's license it but, and remix it and try and like, you know, transform it. Um, or you, or you get tape sent into, you you know, but it's really weird because one of the first cassettes I got was from this guy, this this guy called Marco, who worked with this guy called Dave. And they said, oh, we, we heard that you're the A&R here now because and we really like what you do, we've heard you DJ, um, and we follow you, I had a column in Music Mag at the time, which Ben Turner was running, and it was a big magazine, so I used to write for the US Garage column, right, and Spoonie used to do the UK Garage column, so I would have reviewed your records, you know, all the time, loved what you were doing at the time, and, um, so they liked, they liked my column, right, and, um, they gave it they had this tape and they played to me. And it was kind of like Mood to Swing. It was very much on that Mood to Swing tip. Really well produced. And at the, at this guy, Marco, I don't know what happened. He sort of slipped out of the equation. And it was just, I was talking to this guy called Dave, but the, his name was Dave Taylor, right? So Dave Taylor um, went on to become Switch, went on to produce MIA, went on to produce Do, Do Stuff Beyonce, um, went on to do all the major laser stuff right Right. but it all started with this cassette and he came to see me and he was like yeah it was like he was a real geezer as well he's still he's a real proper geezer he's like all right you know he's effing and blinding yeah 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 and he's like yeah i need a studio and i want to i want to move in the area i said listen if you move into the area we've got a little room here we had this little room that was just covered with carpet it was like a a listening room listening booth but it was quite well soundproofed i said listen you can have that room." 24 hours it's yours but just give me first dibs and whatever music you make so the first name he set up under was um solid grooves and he did a couple of eps for me and i signed them and then um, and i was really happy working at slip and slide it was all going really well been there for about a year and a half and um the profile of the, there was yeah the profile of the label i think was growing just with a lot of the records i was signing and i was promoting them really well then i get a call from Simon Dumble who obviously ran ampm and i met him before that because he was a cool tempo used to work under a guy called steve wolf and i met him when i used to work at red records and he bought some promos in for me so he's calling me and i thought this is weird he said yeah look i like what you're doing blah 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 and i'm looking for someone to come and work at the label so he'd he was at ampm something had gone wrong there he defected Like literally defected, and that was kind of how the name Defected Records came up, right? And I knew about the label because it'd been running for six months, and they'd obviously signed some great records. Um, and I believe they'd signed Powerhouse What You Need, and, and 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 that in that time, um, this was around '98, '99, and I remember you and I were talking a lot, and um, and I'd signed a record from you,
0: um. Is it Evolution, I think it was? No,
1: it was a vocal track.
0: Come and Go With Me. The Carol Silver, I think it was.
1: No. Basically, the music, let's just say the music borrowed from a Dinah Ross record.
0: Oh, I know which one. Um, Who
1: gets the prize.
0: uh, How Long Can I Wait Around.
1: Yeah, that's it. That's That's it. Yeah, listen, I remember now because you and this, I forgot this. You and I were on the phone talking. And you were like, Seamus, what's going on in the UK? And I said to you, "That's a terrible impersonation." I said to you, "That's me,
0: though." That's exactly what I
1: said to you. Said to you. I, I, this i am going to claim this. I said to you, "Right, sample a disco record." Yeah. Oh my god, I forgot about that. Yes. I'm flipping this. Is what I said, "I said sample a disco record and put a vocal on top." Right. So, I remember you sent me a cassette, and it was that track, and I signed it. Right. And then, not long after that i no. got a promo from strictly rhythm and it was powerhouse what you need and i was like damn that's better that's <laughs> that's, I was like, that's better than what i signed and you knocked it out of the park with that one and i was like wow that's amazing and then obviously defective picked it up and you um, were working over there too and i got now i'm leaning from slip and slide I yeah yeah so uh, anyway i was in and Ring, like i was thinking for me, it was a no brainer. It was like to go and work for Simon, who I had loads of respect for. And it was like, for me, it was a, it was a big step up and I was like, okay, I'm sorry to leave here. So I left slip and slide. I'd left Dave Taylor behind, went to, um, defected. Um, and the, the reason I mentioned Dave Taylor is it's just, sometimes you do discover people really early in their careers, but you don't know how big they're going to become. If I looked back in hindsight, I probably would have tried to manage him or, or do more, but, I didn't realise he was that talented. And you know, when he set up the Switch thing with Trevor Lovey's and they set up a label called Dubsided, um, that's just flew and he started doing all that fidget house stuff, and like I say, he got to produce loads of big people. Um, but yeah, I left him behind, went to defected. Um, and then yeah, literally I think when I went in, I was start I had to start promoting your record. And um I remember we did the video, yeah and um
0: because first when you leave from one to the other you tell me on the phone go yeah. do this next thing you know and i remember you saying i'm over yeah. here now and i'm promoting yeah, yeah. And I'm over here.
1: <laughs> i know and you you were you were killing it at the time because you yeah you were killing it back then and um the, the powerhouse was it, was really big, though, it was a great time it was yeah
0: a great time.
1: when i think about those records because we were just signing great Vocal-led house records, whether it's yours or Soul Searcher, Can't Get Enough, you know. And these records were just flying into the pop charts. And, um, yeah, you mentioned Eddie. I know Eddie's on, I don't know if Eddie's still on, but that was, um, Eddie had done the house music, which you turned down, like Yoshi you
0: said. To- yeah, Yoshi Toshi picked it up.
1: Um, and when that came out.
0: becoming a household name. Todd Terry's releasing like crazy. Masters at Work are coming out with a record every week that's hot. It was yeah. a fantastic time for
1: that music. Yeah. Oh, yeah, because we signed to be in love when I Backfired, was there.
0: that all those records
1: you Be yeah. in love, yep. Yeah. And um, and then, yeah, the first record I signed was um, was Rise. I mean, it was on Yoshi Toshi, but, you know, back then, it's different to now, isn't it? Because if you've got a record and you want to, you've got a label, you own it for the, for the world, people can download it and stream it. But back then, it didn't work like that because people weren't streaming music or downloading music. You had to buy the record. So if a record was out in the UK, the America, it still made sense to license it for the UK. Right. Remix it and repackage it to the UK market. And um, yeah, I'd signed that Eddie Amador Rise and got some remixes. I think it was like Future Shock and King Unique or someone like that at the time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was, um, yeah, it was a great time for music. So that was, how I got into it and that's how I got to work with Simon. But it all happened. You understand? Like I I didn't approach Simon for the job. He approached me. I didn't approach slip and slide for the job. They approached me. So I hadn't planned any of that. I think I was just doing things without realizing I was ticking the right boxes, you know?
0: And making history at the same time.
1: Well, you know, you hope so, right? Just doing what you enjoy, isn't it? That's what it is.
0: And, And actually getting a check. Uh, a wage which is quite yes amazing
1: yeah my girlfriend said the other day she said that's the best thing to work out right work out what you like to do and then get paid to do it that's like the dream job isn't it
0: well then it's not a job no longer it's a career yeah because the job is where i hate going to i gotta do this job it sucks yeah this is more like wow I get to travel around the world. I get to play all the places. I get to be treated well. Not to say that, that it's glamorous all the time, but hey, you get a taste of what it's like to be on that side, right? You've been able to travel, you've been able to play all over the, all over Europe, you've been able to play all over the world. You've, you know, you've acquired wisdom because of this job. Yeah. You probably never would have acquired being just stuck in like your own little town. Yeah. You know? This takes you to places. Look, I always say this, I never could have assimilated with people from different cultures because I wouldn't have never had the chance to be around them. So you take things back with you to learn from, Yeah, to, to share, and changes your whole viewpoint. Your, your, your vision opens up further than just being tunnel vision. Because a lot of people we know, and you know this too, they only see, yeah. okay, I go to work, got the kids <laughs> at school. I got to take football lessons. I got to do this. I got to do that. And it's the, it's a rat race. And yeah, all you're yeah. doing is talking about when I retire. You never thought about the fun amongst all that time that we worked. Yeah. You know, the memories we have alone, we can write.
1: Oh, it's crazy. Yeah, I mean, nuts. yeah, me and you go back. That's a, that's a lot of years, you know. Um, it's
0: almost 30 least, years I know you. It's yeah, a long time. Yeah. Long time. But speaking on a good note, Now, I remember, of course, when I met Simon, he was at Cool Tempo. This is way before defective. so I do remember meeting him. Um, When I was starting to get my records on Azuli at that time, Dave Piccioni was signing stuff. So I, I, let's put it like this, I was on Simon Dunmore's radar at that time already. Yeah, Of course, I was coming over to play. And what we would do is, I would try to see everybody. Because the idea of being in the UK to come and DJ, I'd want to try to sign records to all of you. You know, and that's an important thing. You know, signing records, making relationships, getting remixes, because it was a big business back then. So that's where my next question goes. I remember BBT God's Child. I remember those white labels coming out from you and stuff?
1: And- oh God, yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: God's Child, God's Child. Does everybody that- remember that? Put yeah. your hands up, for God's Child. That's Seamus.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah that-, that was funny. That was You're funny. Like
0: this. like this to me, here, Lenny. <laughs> my label. He just put BBT on his system. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Start rocking this for me. Yeah. Plus the power of the DJ is still very important, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, that was funny because um I when I did this, I did a remake of um Go Bang under my name. It was the first time I did something under the name Seamus Haji. And it was signed to Cult Records, and Cult had a connection. And they managed to, I guess they were speaking to Sleeping Bag or whoever it was. And um that would, be Will, that
0: would have been Will Sokolov, because that's... Yeah. When,
1: yeah, see, so they managed to clear the sample, right?
0: Yep. And, and, he, um, he owns all the Arthur Russell stuff. I know he owns that,
1: for sure. Right. So they cleared it. And then a friend of mine, this guy called Nick Harris, he used to work at Defender Music. I think he might have been at Freetown as well. He just said to me, oh, you should make some... Why don't you use Big Bang Theory? Because I called it Big Bang Theory instead of Go Bang. Kind of, revert, you know, referring to when it all started, the Big Bang Theory. So he said, "Why do not you use the Big Bang Theory as a moniker?" So I started. I did a couple of tracks under Big Bang Theory. I did a version of um, Tanya Garda's "When You Touch Me" that went out on Z Records. Um, did a couple more on on, on Cult Records, and um, and then I did some EPs when I was on uh, when I was working with Slip and Slide. I did some EPs there, and then when I was at Defected, um, I did a few demos, and Simon was like, "Oh, I really like that one," and I'd use obviously the. Um, the sample by Just As Long As I've Got You. Um, Love, come in. Love Come Love Comedy. Just because it was like really powerful, really emotive. And then I had this album called Save the Children. This double vinyl album I bought in the 80s just because uh, it had Isaac Hayes and all this stuff on there. It was an amazing album. Um, but it had Jesse Jackson, Jesse Jackson talking. And um, that's when he was doing the whole I Am Somebody speech. And um, I think Public Enemy had sampled a bit of it as well. And I did this demo and it was, so it was using that vocal, I am somebody. And credit where credit's due, it was Simon Dunmore who said, I think you should change it. So don't have him saying, I am somebody, have him saying, there was a bit where he said God's, he said, have him saying, I am God's child and just keep repeating that. So it doesn't say I am somebody, it just says I am God's child. So I, I did that. And then um, I don't know why. We just thought, why don't we do it as a white label and see what happens? Don't let anyone know it's me and just put BBT. So we did that and it went out. And then, funny enough, um, Craig the Mech, who had been doing A&R at Positiva, but he was working with Nick Hawkes at Incentive. that was a label that was um, set up with Ministry of Sound, just like Defective was initially. And they actually, they didn't know it was me, but they actually put a, a pitch in for it. They wanted to sign the record. Not knowing that, you, was, were invo- that you were involved, you were behind it, and they didn't know it was defective. Because so I think we, we yeah, promoted. because
0: everybody had white labels, and it just said B B and T or something like that. Yeah,
1: B B T. Yeah, so it was B B T for Big Bang Theory. Pen written with pen. Yeah, but I remember. Yeah, yeah, and we'd given it to um power promotions in the UK to promote it, so nobody knew it was a defective record. Nobody knew and then, anything
0: behind it. Nobody knew anything. No. To- you handing it to me, saying, "Keep this on the, ch- keep this close to your chest."
1: Yeah. I'm like, yeah, why? Yeah, yeah. He says, You'll find out later. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh my so, we, so we did sign it to them. And then, um, and then Judge Jaws, I think he played on Radio One for about six weeks in a row. And then we put it out. And it actually went into pop charts. It went in like the top, I think the top 50 of the pop charts. It was just an underground dance record, you know. Um, Crazy. Crazy. But yeah, it was like that. Then you could make those kinds of records, you know, and they, they would do that. Yeah, different time.
0: So from that point, I remember, of course, you know, Janet's there, you working and I know you guys consummated marriage and God bless you both. You had children. Yeah. And you, when did you end your tenure at, at defected?
1: So I was there for about, after being there for about two and a half years, I think it was like just come up to the end of 2002 and we, we we were just, I think we were just getting ready to put God's child out. And, um, what it is, I was working full time A&R and I just, I found it really difficult to get in the studio. And sometimes I was getting offered gigs abroad and I wasn't allowed to go and do the gigs if they were during the week. Cause you could go and play, you could play in Portugal during the week. It was the parties over there were going off. And, um, I just felt like I wanted to do my own thing. So, um, that's when I left. And, um, I didn't know what I was going to do, actually. I just started making some records and then it just made sense to set up my own label. So what I did was um, the, the Sons of Soul record, Race and Survival, which I'd released back in 94, I f- just found it for some reason. And then I just had this Carl Bean, you know, record, and I tried the over the instrumental and it just sort of fitted like a glove. So, and I, I got in touch with, at the time I spoke to Mel Sharon. Because um, Kevin Hedge was doing A&R for him at West End Records. But
0: pre to that, you called me and asked if I had the instrumental version. And, and I... On phone calls, yes. Really? I just remember because you said to me, do you have oh. the instrumental version? And I sent it over to you from the flip side of the Motown record, from Tom Moulton. Oh. And you said to me, but that's not the part Pal Joey uses. I got to yeah, get yeah. the part. I remember the conversation. That, I forgot uh, about that. Yeah, because you yeah. were saying I, I got this record I'm working on, but I want yeah, yeah. a part that sounds like dance with
1: Joe. I forgot about that. Yeah. Well I've got and and I said to that. you, and I said yeah. to you
0: you've got to go to Mel Sharon. He's got the master, the two inch. Yeah. And you yeah. made the four. Go ahead.
1: Wow, good memory. So I, I spoke- just remembered it. Just remembered it. Yeah, I know can't why. remember. But um yeah, spoke to Mel Sharon. And then um he was like, cool, as I'd like, like that, we could work something out, you know, with this record. And um, so we worked it out and he let me put it out. And then, um, again, I just did that as a white label and I did it under this name, Mecca. So I'd I'd received, I released one record under the name Mecca um, on Defected called I Got You featuring Brian Chambers, which actually was a complete rip-off of your record, Got What You Need, the Powerhouse record. (laughs) It's completely like that, right? It's a different sample. Um, I mean it, it, it's, it's influenced by that record if you listen to it right very much so so I did that record and um, I had no idea to be honest yeah yeah I'll, I'll send it to you
0: and I'll be honest with you here's it I know the record Mecca but here's the thing we're getting records back I'm not paying attention saying that Seamus take my record or, or listen
1: I was very influenced by that record man you know um but anyway uh, so what I did was I used the, the new thank you Thank you. Yeah. Page need love. Thank you. I used, I used the name Mecca again. Again, because <laughs> I just want, I didn't want people to know it's me. Well,
0: here's a, that's the question. Why were you hiding Seamus from the world?
1: I, I, you know what? I think because um, I didn't want people to snub the record. Because like, oh, it's, it's Seamus. I'm sure there would have been a little bit of that. Like when I did God's Child, I just think it created more excitement that people didn't know it was me. You know, and I'm talking more from a UK perspective. And then when I did the Mecca record, I got you again because like I'm working for the label. So I just wanted to keep it separate. It's like we can put it out for a label, but nobody's going to notice me unless they read the small print. And um, and then, yeah, with Race and Survival, I thought, right, I'll do it under the name Mecca. Did a white label. And it was based, so it was Race and Survival, but with the, the Carl Bean sample, which worked really well. And that created a buzz in the shops. And we, so I had no intention of setting up a record label. We just pressed up 500 white labels. We did enough. Once we sold 2,000 white labels, we decided to set up a label. And we set up two labels. One was called Big Love for more mainstream house, like main room house music. And one was called Soul Love for the more soulful stuff. And then we probably sold about 6,000 copies of that record back in the day. And it was like, oh, uh, you know, a new so label. Let
0: me, it, let me clarify it for everybody who's in this new world of saying, <laughs> you know, downloads, digital downloads, and everyone's so excited over they get 300 downloads on track source and they're in the chart. Could you imagine having to sell 6,000 physical copies? 6,000 physical copies. You know what the pressing bill was? A lot. Yeah. And look how much money, but how much work went into it. So you had to spend planned six to eight months between promotion and working a record hard to get this physical thing to go all the way. So things took a, a lot longer back then and you had to be completely locked into it because once you start laying out money, that's the way it goes. You actually have these physical copies and there has been mistakes made where you pressed it wrong. mastering had to be redone. Imagine that scrap everything and do it again. <laughs> It's happened to all of us, yeah. but it's part of the commitment. Whereas today, in the digital age, oh no problem, we'll take it down and put it back up. Doesn't cost much, except some time. Yeah. See, so people were reluctant, and they really had to believe in what you did back then to put records out.
1: you. Know, you really- oh, I mean, it was it's a big risk. I I remember at the time, um, I probably had about two thousand pounds in my bank account, and um, you know, no job. And I was like, what do I do? But I was DJing every weekend. That was the good thing. And um, we did two records. There was another one I did um, on Big Love called Your Underwear. And there was under another moniker called Get This. So what I was doing was probably a bit influenced by Joe Negro, where he was making all the records himself, his dead records label, but under different monikers. Yes. So right? it was Grant because
0: Nelson. Grant Nelson's doing
1: the Grant same. Grant Nelson as well, yeah. Because And you could do it then. Because It seems bizarre because it seems like, the polar opposite of what you should do for the profile of your name, but when you've got a label and you're not you, you're not an established label where people are going to send you records to sign, not good records anyway. um And you're making all the records, you just end up yeah doing them under different monikers to keep the interest. So not every single record is Seamus harji Seamus harji So I was making records as Mecca and Get This and Eleventh Dimension, loads of different monikers, Big Bang Theory as well, and. uh yeah it just kind of grew from there it just kind of like okay now we've got a label and we're running this thing and and also we were just lucky that the records i made were really popular so they were getting exclusively licensed in other territories so someone in italy with a licensed race and survival so they had exclusive single rights there and maybe in another country or germany and then we were getting loads of compilation requests and it was mad because you just get on head candy and Ministry of Sound compilations, and there was good money to be made. Obviously, that's when there was a good compilation market, you know? So it, it was different times. Like, yeah, setting up a record label today is a whole different cat of the fish. But back then, you know, you could pretty much be a very small cottage industry, one man band set up, and you could do really well out of having a record label. But it was never just the label, that was obviously djing
0: as well right you've always had that dj thing going on pesky bothersome type of job that you had to do yeah yeah people gave you drinks and you enjoyed yourself and made people happy but it's a bit pesky during the weekends (laughs) (laughs) but as we keep this going so big love is created off the back of the strength that you had defected when you left defected i noticed big love became your mainstay yeah how, so how did that? Transform?
1: Yeah, yeah. That's another thing as well. I mean, uh, you know, this is the thing, Lenny. You know, when you get to this age, <clears throat> you look back on things. You think we all make mistakes. I probably I made some mistakes. I've done things. Yeah, I, I can remember. I can remember when I did. um I did God's Child with Defected. Then I left. Then I was doing Big Love. I did a follow up um, record as Big Bang Theory, which was called Do You Got Funk. And I remember Simon wanted it. He wanted to sign it for Defected. You know, he had an idea of. What we could do with it, and then I was just like, you know what? I'm gonna keep it for myself. And I probably ended up keeping too much stuff for myself because when you just do stuff on your label, it, it you don't tap into other labels and the profile you get from other labels, or maybe get into play at their events and all that stuff, you know. So if for anyone out there today, I'd always say, Look, yeah, great, have your own label, but don't just be in one lane, like work with other labels to help your profile build and other labels can do things you can't do, you know, because Defect is a massive label. But I um, I just think at that time, like a lot of people, I was really focused on my label and making records for my label. I own them for life of copyright. Do you know what I mean? I just liked having ownership of... And also, you know, if I had an idea to make a record, I didn't have to run it by anybody. It was just like, I like this, I believe in it, and and I want to release it. So it, was, it it was creative freedom, you know? um that's what i enjoyed about it
0: and and as and i guess there is mistakes Lonely. we'll ask you that in a moment but what's the yeah. first now that you leave the fact that what's the what's the premise now for you and janet because janet's working alongside you as well now she's now doing your promotion and working the record day to day yeah what, what's that like are you signing stuff from people at that time or are you just only you putting stuff out
1: well initially it was only me because we, we, we didn't have a rep you know it wasn't like um most people would want to sign their records to the affected or azuli or you know there's a number of labels out there so you know just like I, i've had friends like hfc you know he had his one fat diva label um people like that, that i knew had their own labels and they were producing their own records and probably enjoyed having that ownership um but i think within a couple of years um and also, I didn't really want to rinse it out with doing remixes. I was very much about making a record and releasing the record without being reliant on remixes. Just like making the record, if it performs well, maybe you could remix it in the future. But it was all about the record itself being good. And um, But at some point, um, I guess I started doing collaborations with some people. So me and I did we did some collaborations. And, um, and then it was like people wanted me to start doing remix swaps with them. So that started happening. People like Beanie Martini, Mark Knight, obviously ATFC. Um, we started doing remix swaps. So I'd do something for their label. they do something for my label. Then we started doing collaborations. Um, then people started sending records to me to sign. So when that happened, it was like, "All oh, right, okay, now people want to sign records to the label, you know. Um, so that was happening as well. And it was, yeah, it was going really well. Um, it just, yeah, just grew in popularity. Well, so
0: who's the, the partner, I'll let you name him, that you started doing the remixes with?
1: Oh, Paul Emanuel. Thank you. Yeah.
0: When did that start? And how so
1: did that begin? So that's really weird, right? So I I met him back in the days. If we go back to the 90s, like 94, when I did um, Sons of Soul. Um, around that time, even before doing the Race to Survive Record, I'd started doing some remixes. Um, with somebody called Paul Waller, who used to work with, um, used to program for Frankie Fonset. And um, he programmed beats and for uh, Massive Attack and Soul to Soul. And we just met through the record shop. And um, he started doing some remixes. And he says to me, oh, I've got this remix to do. And next thing I know, we're remixing Lisa Stansfield. It was a big, big name at, at the time. Um and we did some pre-production and again it was sort of gave me the insight of how to make records again i I had my mpcc mpc 60 at the time and but we had this like really hot keyboard player um we went into a big ssl studio we had a really great engineer just having that team where it makes your dreams you know come to life and i was like playing records or samples and things i liked so we did this lisa sandsville remix and um we were doing a few remixes and we were working in this, uh, loads of SLSL studios. There was one called Battery Studios in Wilsham that was connected to Jive Zomba. And one of the in-house engineers was Paul Emmanuel. We had this remix to do and we got in, and he was the engineer that we were given. Um, so that was around 94, I think. Fast forward, I think to around 99, 2000, when I was at Defected and, um, i was looking for an engineer to work with and simon said to me oh i know this guy called paul emmanuel and he used to be part of club asylum with jeremy sylvester so they had done a lot of stuff on that kind of uk garage scene and i was like i know that name and um actually when i did the mecca record i got you with brian chambers um he engineered it so i went in and we worked on that track together and then when I left affected and I set up big love, it was basically, he was my guy. He was my engineer. And I'd go with my ideas and we'd make them happen. And then at some point I said to him, I heard something that he did. He did a remix on a Zooli that never came out, but there was a Chush and Speras record and he did this remix and it was like quite electronic. And I was getting a bit influenced by um, some electronic stuff like Chicken Lips, He Not In, that record had come out. And it, I was really influenced by that record. And I'd heard what he'd done. I said, why don't we do something together? And I had this idea to remix... Um, well, I had the acapella to Class Action Weekend. And I had an idea to sample it and do something with it. And we just did it together. And so we did it as Harjit and Emmanuel. And he, at that point, wasn't DJing. He had no interest in DJing. So nobody really knew who he was because he wasn't out there DJing as Paul Emmanuel. Um, and I was obviously the DJ in the duo. But... Um, so either we would do sessions where it was my project and he would engineer for me, or we would do stuff uh, collaboratively together. And I think when we worked together, we both grew and developed, I think. We kind of learned stuff from each other. I've I got a lot of respect for him.
0: Yeah, he's very talented and a great engineer. We all yeah. used to remark, damn, Seamus records sound dope.
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> nice he's and master- bright and clean. Yeah. He smashed he's- the shit out of that SSL boy.
1: Well, he's yeah, he's a massive part of that. And I remember at the time I used to, there was a place I used back clean.
0: then. Clean, dude, Shavis, you used to be able to eat off your drums. I cleaned everything <laughs> down. I used to joke about. It, I said, "This guy, what's he doing? Digital shit? This shit don't even sound like analog anymore. It sounds he's so." Very clean.
1: talented. I remember going in with my MPC sixty, and it was just like because I was always used to doing my own beats, and it was like once he did it, I was like, "Oh, okay." I'll just leave him to do it. He yeah, put it right right. here.
0: Yeah, put it down. Yeah, Head back.
1: Yeah he's he was, he was shit hot but you know at the same time it's like um it was i'm very ideas driven it was just like we both our influences work together so what we would doing when we were doing all the things like darje bright days and degrees of motion do you want it right now and we would just pick take you know what it was for me at the time we did go a bit more electronic but it tapped into what i said to you earlier where my first thing that i'd got into when it was dancing it was electro funk and hip-hop so that early electro-funk stuff that I'd been influenced by, when there were a few records coming out, like Chicken Lips, and there were some slightly electro-funk records coming out, uh, electro-house records, I kind of, it was a throwback to that for me. So we were kind of taking that inspiration of that slight electronic vibe, and then, but then we'd be mixing it with pianos and, you know, strings.
0: Still um, making uh, a hybrid, still keeping that soul edge to it. I remember that. yeah. We call it hybrid sounding, electro-hybrid
1: house music. Yeah. So we we kind of, yeah, we created, we came up with our own sound, basically. So, yeah, we had and a good Archie run.
0: Manuel did a lot of, hats off to you on that, a lot of good remixes. I remember playing a lot of stuff. So as this, as the barometer of time goes on and music changes, mm. I remember around 06, 07, as the music that we loved started to go real underground and a young man named david getter comes out with that new edm sound with the piano where does that take your sound and big love where do you do from that point
1: change well i think you know you know to be honest if you listen to a lot of labels from that time whether it's Taurum or defected or just loads of labels um they all went down the electronic path like everybody did you know you listen to a David Penn record from 2007, 2008, Is electronic, right? Um, it wasn't EDM. It wasn't what David Guess is doing. But with, like I'm saying, I got influenced by the electronic vibe. It all went slightly more electronic. That's just what happened. And um, the EDM thing just took it to the extreme because it ended up sounding like sort of slowed down trance music. It just became something else like pop vocals. Um, it was a difficult time. I think from around 2007 up until I don't know many years later, house music was in a, in a difficult place. Oof,
0: it, was, it was non-existent difficult. almost. <laughs> yeah, labels closed. Uh, the the digital downloading started to become more prevalent. It, it just everything that we were used to changed like dramatically. Yeah. You know where you can make a living on selling a few thousand copies every month. For having your own record label was no longer existent. That just wasn't existent. Pressing plants were closing. You remember?
1: Yeah. It was a difficult time for all of us. Oh yeah, we got burnt. I remember probably.
0: Three M V closed. Uh Let's yeah. go down. Amato closed. Everybody was owed money. We were yeah. like, ah. Oh. Yeah, we I lost it. Going on invoice is going. Yeah. Holy shit. Somebody owes you 20000
1: 10000 yeah. What? That was the death of a lot of labels. We were, um, we lost probably about, I think we lost about 8,000 pounds at one point. Listen to that, people. He lost
0: money like everybody. You hear that? Yeah. It's real. That's it's the, all being real. Yeah. Two house stories. It's
1: real. <clears throat> and that was just because, when we, were, we what we used to do was we used to manufacture records, but we weren't with one distribution company. We would just, we would manufacture the record and then we would give it to different distributors. But just one of them went down and owed us like £8,000, which we just had to ride. But back then, <clears throat> I remember in those times, like 2004, 2005, and we'd go to Miami because that was the place that, you know, the Winter Music Conference in Miami was was going off. And I can remember we probably just got a £20,000 check from Ministry of Sound. And that was just for the last six months of compilation usage you know so there was money to be had happy
0: days are here happy days day. they <laughs> were really happy days
1: and then it just sort of <clears throat> the music scene changed you know there's illegal downloads people are file sharing the club scene had changed it, i'll tell you what i'd be honest with you there was a point when house the word house was a dirty word
0: exactly
1: that was word was not word. being used it was
0: curse word <laughs> like saying when disco died you like disco get out of here kid
1: yeah <clears throat> it was a dirty word people were not i mean you hear the word house music now being used a lot on a lot of platforms there was a time it was not being used oh
0: it was an evil it was a curse word it was like yeah. your house music will get out of here
1: yeah so you know i'm just being honest you know when you run when you've i mean you know i love what i do but the when it <clears throat> when it's your livelihood this is your business you do have to adapt to the marketplace doesn't mean I was going to start putting out trance records or whatever, but you do slightly adapt. So I was always like doing stuff on big love that was moving a bit more electronic, but then I also had soul love. So I could still make records that were a bit more soulful and do those on Soul Love. I still had that outlet. And when it came to doing remixes, yeah. I mean, I did a lot of remixes, you know, for big artists, whether it was Rihanna or Moby or Calvin Harris, you know, um and that's hard to turn down. It's it's you know, it's nice yeah. to have those those calls and people are paying you good money. Um and then at some checks point coming in, checks
0: coming in. Yeah, checks
1: coming in, you know, you got kids, you've got kids at school and the mortgage, and, and at some point you start thinking, right, am I is this what I intended to do? Am I really enjoying this? Your life's change, you know, you've got responsibilities and when I started out I was making music for fun. And then it's like, oh, this is my living. And you, you, you're you getting older and it starts to get more serious. You know? Yep. So. Wait,
0: anyway, were you asking questions to yourself? Did I make a
1: mistake? Yeah, there's definitely times I think, oh, I did, you know, because I might have done, you know, I did some, th- you know, I had some records that went in the pop charts, you know, where it was the, the Booty Love Boogie Tonight record, you know, number two in the UK pop charts. I never thought I would do that. It was in, in the top 10 for six weeks, you know? I did the last night DJ Save My Life. That was obviously very electronic, um, was in the top 15. And that, that, you know, a lot of people know me for that record who never knew me before because they don't know my backstory because you've gone on a, what happens is you've gone on a more commercial level and they only know you for that record. Right. So when you would have done probably Powerhouse, it's like, oh, again, you know, you did that, Ramonica. Yeah. They didn't know
0: anything about me before that. No. The industry did, but not the general public. No.
1: But you did well, the same thing. You you could have done that as Lenny Fontana, but you did it as Powerhouse. Well, as.
0: because the technicality was if I wanted to do Lenny Fontana, I'd strictly be owning my name and I couldn't use it today. BMG would own my name.
1: Oh, right. Okay.
0: Because in those, those days, you had to sign the name over. to Exclusive.
1: The yeah, that's a good point. And
0: I was yeah. not going to do that. So I would do an inducement letter which stated that you can own the Powerhouse name and I could still go and do other things. Otherwise, I'd yeah. be dead right now.
1: Yeah, because you did the other record, didn't you? The um... Chocolate Sensation. Chocolate Sensation.
0: What name was that under? That was under Lenny Fontana, but I did that directly with FFRR Yeah. So I was able to do that for X amount of time deal, oh, okay. and it still yep. allowed me to go ahead and do it. Yeah. I would do it that way, but with the American labels, they wanted to sign everything, including your name, and I couldn't yeah. let that happen. I was never allowing you take my name that's my yeah, real name now what do i do with my real name yeah
1: yeah yeah. and
0: it no more forget that
1: yeah so i Not guess to
0: even say now even looking forward yeah, i yeah. wish my name was like that instead of powerhouse because that would be the moniker but yeah in hindsight thank god i didn't sign away because i'd be going now i can't do any- anything under my name yeah today
1: and so i yeah and i'd probably i don't know maybe i'm much i i don't know sometimes i think i might i could have done the more commercial stuff under a different moniker because people would still know it's me um i don't know because once you do something under your name that's what people know you for so a lot of people will know me from you know boogie tonight booty love and last night dj they don't know any of the other stuff and then people who know me from before that will think oh hold on he's really changed his sound and um it's just kind of what was going on at the time and I was being influenced by stuff and there was stuff that was exciting me that was um that was influencing me I suppose um and then I think at some point years ago I think about six years ago um it just got to a point where I was like right I, I'm, I just stopped doing all the remixes because I was still even like up to about what yeah five years ago I was still getting remixes from major labels, whether it's Labyrinth or Ed Sheeran and all these big artists and um really good money but it just got to a point where i thought it isn't what i want to do anymore and i kind of went back to basics with big love and soul love and went back to making the records that i started making out originally which were all very much based on funk and soul and disco so going back to the roots i just wanted to make stuff that i was happy making again you know
0: and that makes sense because you're still an artist after all said and done you're still artistic
1: yeah So, So you know, on the road,
0: on Seamus's road in the car, because I'm sitting next (laughs) to him. So we're driving along and here we come into 26, 2006, 2010, 2012. Things are starting to come back a little bit. Yeah. Starting to make a change again. I started noticing around 2012, dance music started to make a change where disco was starting to show its colors. Yeah.
1: 2011,
0: 2012. Pre to even Glitterbox really being famous yet, but yeah. I'm starting to see people a lot of remixes. Dimitri's releasing stuff. Where are you in all that? What are you thinking? What's going on?
1: Um, I think I was, yeah, I was looking at the time, I was just reviewing the situation because I remember 2010 when things were kind of weird. Um, again, I just got approached. This happens to me, it just seems to happen. I got approached by Strictly Rhythm. To do A and R for them on a full-time basis. So I was running Big Love. I a who approached you? Was it Mark Finkelsen? yeah. Because they were going through defective, but then there was a point where they wanted to become completely autonomous. So they split from defected and I won't go into it now, it's a long story, but when I'd originally originally left Defected back in 2002, there was a point where Mark and I were talking about Strictly Rhythm, and he was in a weird place with Strictly Rhythm because he'd done a deal with, um, I think it was, was it Warner at the time? exactly who it was. Yeah, he'd done a deal with Warner in the UK.
0: Warner America, actually.
1: Yeah, and he was in a weird place with that deal. And we were talking about me going to work with him, but there was all these legal wranglings that he was going through. You remember that was all going on at the time, right?
0: Yeah, I remember because I, right. I was. a Few of my big records got wrapped up in that. All right. were clear. Yes. Yeah.
1: So it was that time. It was that time of live element be free. That was a record that they believed in, and I remember Warner wouldn't run with it, and it was. A how, weird
0: about time. My, how about my pow 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 record with Gerald DiVino? Oh, that, yeah. That that EMI called that wanted to license it. Now, I couldn't license it to them because he did the wanna deal. Oh,
1: God, I'm sick oh, of that. Oh, right. Yeah. Yep. So I'm in the that middle all, of that too. That I'm was all that. going on. So we, yeah. we, we had this little talk back then. And then when I left, um, well, no, then I was running Big Love. And then when they left defected, I guess he just fought with me again. So he picks up the phone and said, listen, I want you to come and be full-time A&R you're going to have to put Big Love on a, on a hiatus for a while. So, I, Big Love was ticking over, but I wasn't signing music to it. And then um, I was working there with Phil Cheeseman um, for about a year, and we were signing good music and putting it out. But you know, because of all that stuff that was going on, like the EDM stuff and and dubstep, um, I was getting this pressure on me to sign these kinds of records. And I didn't want to sign that kind of music. So, we just agreed that we'd part ways based on musical differences. And I didn't think they should go down that path. So I left. They did go down that path for a bit. Um, and then I went back to, the, to doing my thing with Big Love. <clears throat> and I'll be honest with you, it was a bit difficult back then. It was like 2011, like 2011 2012, up until about 2014, I was doing stuff. But like I said to you before, I was busy DJing. I was still doing lots of big remixes for major labels over here and in, and in America. Um, but it was definitely a bit more, it was the more commercial stuff, you know, remixing Usher and Neo. But it was paying the bills. Um, but it was a weird time. And then, I, like I say, by about 2014, that's when I said to myself, I just, I don't want to be doing that stuff anymore. And I want to just get back to doing what it is that I want to do. So I'll be honest, that was... And did I, I might have made mistakes. There might have been things I shouldn't have done. You know, it's difficult. When people are offering you remixes for lots of money, and th- the thing about it is, well, you get a bit pigeonholed. So when you've made a record like... Booty Love by Boogie Tonight, and it's gone number two in the pop charts. Everybody wants you to do that again. They want, I that, want
0: that sound. That's yeah,
1: that sound. Or, just
0: put my song, put my artist on that sound. It's like, huh?
1: Yeah, and I never really did that, to be honest, but they want that full vocal remix. And once you do a full vocal remix, it takes you away from, it's less clubby. It's more about radio and doing the radio edits, and you end up in a more commercial world. So your remixes are getting played in the more on the more commercial shows and stuff like that. So. You know, um, yeah, I did a lot of that. And I think a lot of people have done that in the past. You just get to the point where your name is really popular and you get inundated with remixes and then you think, hold on, I've got to start making my own records again and um, making records that I really enjoyed. And through that process, I was also getting older. And when you get older, you're more likely to go back to your original roots, the music that you got into in the first place. You
0: sure you weren't getting grumpier?
1: <laughs> that's ask my kids that but i heard you know, otherwise i've heard otherwise <laughs> <laughs> but you know i um yeah it was just about getting back to doing what i really loved and enjoyed
0: so, so here on, on the on the on the time scale you know we're getting yeah. to, we're almost getting closer back to 2016 2018
1: yeah yeah so i'll tell you what happened right i'll be honest with you i was um yeah, just on my own, running the label, and um it just got to a point where I wanted to start something new, so I started this other little imprint called Reloved, which is very much tapped into that sort of re-edit world, because I was getting quite influenced by that stuff, and it's just a, a passion, you know, Um and then I just thought, right, for me to get my mojo back, I started, you know, commissioning remixes on basically records I'd made years ago, so things like hardy and emmanuel weekend i gave to david penn to remix um i think i gave darje bright days to angelo ferrari to remix and just bringing it and people like dr packer were coming into the mix um just getting people to remix my records and then i started working out what i wanted to do and it was definitely going down more of the the disco influenced side of things and i thought that's kind of where i want to be i want to be more in in that lane so i started making new records whether they were sample tracks or full vocal so, tracks.
0: So so what's the first record that, because infl- I noticed there's a record that that's like a light bulb turns on. There had to be one record and you said, right, I can do this. What's that record? You must've heard something that said, I'm going in the studio
1: now. Um, I don't, I'm not sure, actually. It might've been, <clears throat> I remember I did race, when I, with Race to Survival, <clears throat> that was one where there's a record I was very close to, and I wanted to have it refreshed, but I didn't want to do it myself, so I gave it to Richard Earnshaw.
0: Good choice. And, yeah, muso uh, muso Richard Earnshaw. Where are you, Richard? Come on, And I didn't have all the. <laughs> Muzo, I didn't have parts. Muzo?
1: I didn't have the parts, but I, I gave him the vocal, and I think he did it like as a reedit and stuff, and he, he basically slowed it down, just and just stripped it back. And it was that was probably one of the records I heard where somebody was like reworking one of my records. I thought, okay, that's kind of the approach I need to take is slow it down, clean it up, strip it back. Because when we were making those records in the late 90s and they're all 128 BPM, they're all skipping drums, just like fast, like loads going on. Yeah. When you're used to doing that, that's what you're used to. So now it's like, all right, it's really dropped and then it also affects the genre of the music so it's kind of if once you get down to you're taking it from that tempo to one two two one twenty it's like and then it fits into the a specific genre which is uh new disco I mean back in the day a lot of these records now that are, are in all these different genres on the something's called tech house something's called house something's new disco whatever back in the day we didn't have that it was just it was all house music you know. So when I was going, yeah. yeah, who the hell is it it all under that? the same umbrella? What? Otherwise, the record like Chicken Lips, he not in it. Would have been like, well, where's this? Where do we, where do we place this? There wasn't there wasn't a new disco genre. That was just a record that got played in the house clubs, and but it got played across the board. So everything now is so genre specific. So you have to be. It's very much about the tempo, the drums, um and I think we've all got better at listening to making records and making them cleaner. So. I kind of learned that from, that was one of the records that made me think, oh, that's how I need to approach my music. Just slow it down and just strip it back. Let it breathe a bit more, you know? Okay.
0: So disco found you and the new disco found you, the slower sound. It's because I guess because we're getting older, we need to slow it all down. So we can keep up with it. Yeah. I hear it. I hear you. So you're on your quest now to do this disco sound. Very cool again here we go you get called somehow back to defect it somewhere i know that's coming when the hell did that call come back
1: so that was yeah that was kind of mad that was um Agnes i
0: thought so too when i said yeah. wow talk about full circle
1: yeah so this was it was last year at um ims and um you know in amongst um running my label still djing um of producing music and stuff and like i say i'd stopped doing all remixing but i'd started doing some other things as well like i just kind of got into managing a few people so i was managing again it's only because now i've got more knowledge and i've been in the industry a while i started managing this duo called illis and Barrientos from scotland and they'd done a remix for me and then it was just like ended up managing them and um so was did you like
0: all. did you like doing yeah the I, I
1: it was yeah it's it's, it's interesting to manage with the with the management you've got to put your ego to one side that's what you've got to do because it's not about you anymore it's about these new guys who are coming through so you've got the experience and you can help them and tell them about stuff and you've been there um but it's very much about them so I did enjoy it and I really like the guy got on with them really well um but I was just over at IMS and I was there for probably because of that reason. I was, I was managing them and we were talking about a deal with Ultra Records for them and they, they've done the deal now. So I was doing things just based on my experience. I got them a publishing deal, got them a great American a- agent. Um, we were talking about doing a deal for, for records with Ultra at the time. And then um, somebody just mentioned something to me um, and they just said that um, somebody was leaving at Defected and the person that spoke to me, his label goes through them. And he just said, look, you know, I I wouldn't mind you looking after my label because they have obviously got loads of label labels under the, the wing. Um, and that was Brian Tapper. So, you know, Sulfuric goes through defected. And, um, and obviously I've known Brian for years. And that's basically what happened. He just said, look, I, someone's leaving. And that person used to look after my label uh, amongst other labels and then we just um yeah it just led to that we had a chat i think he had a word and then we just next thing i came back to, from ims had a meeting in the defective office and I'm, and then i started the week after that um and then i had to stop managing the guys just because it was they were connected to another label so it was like look i'd love to keep managing you but i couldn't um but i guess when it comes down to it in all honesty would i rather at this point in my life would i rather be managing people or would i rather be doing a and r and it's a and r because that's what i do and i've done that for years and um and then part of the conversation also was about bringing um big love into the defective fold which was also really nice because i'm just not i'm not on my own now i was doing everything myself um so that was really good as well just to bring that in so and just be part of a, a team
0: so now we go and I, I, we all find out that you're back at Defected. Of course, we're all happy to hear it because it's one of our own. Yeah. That we know understands our world because that's important. So they had some other people working there during that shift that we talk about that in between time mm. that are looking at more like the Coca-Cola record, more the younger guys. Yeah. And we, as who we are, are looked at as the good old great dinosaurs roaming the earth. You know, it's like, cool. Yeah. Oh, it's all good, but we're still not to pasture. No,
1: God, yeah. no. Because I he, have he, a
0: lot of, I have, especially for me alone and with my other co-parts, we still got a lot of mileage left on these cars. We're yeah. still ready to rock. I'm still ready. I'm hot riding now. I'm ready to go full power, which I have been, but. It's glad to know that one of our own, one of our own people, that we grew up together, grew old together in this game. because yeah. we were all grown men already. But we all grew old together doing this. But we understand our, we understand the old, and we and we also embrace the new. So now yeah. you're involved in a situation where are you just ARing? What exactly is the job title now at the
1: factory? What is so? Your- so I'm anr and my. my- My responsibilities are to, um, it's like A&R Label Manage for Glitterbox, Sulfuric, Fall to the Floor, which is the label we use for all the the catalogue records we sign, um, we release through there. Um, Also New Groove, that's another label we've got that we're releasing on. Then I've brought Big Love in as well. Um, And then, but saying that, we're very... um, it's all about the, the good of the company. So it's like if someone signs me, sends me a record or if I hear something that I think is good for defected records, I'm not going to ignore it. So I, I can bring stuff in for defected or DFTD or if I think it's for classic music, the label that Luke runs. So I kind of had that approach. I mean, there's a couple of records now. There's one that I've signed to defected records. There's something else that I might try and bring in for DFTD. So do you know what I mean? It's about it's the way music comes into the effect is like it will come into us and then we'll play it to each other. And it's very much then that if we all like it, it's about which label would we'll it fit on. So I could get a record and think, Oh, this could be great for big love or it could be for the box, or it might be better for sulfuric. Um, you know, we signed a record from um, Oscar G recently and that was, it's a new record, but it's kind of got an old school feel. So that felt really right for four to the floor. And we signed a record from Joe Vaughn which just sounded like it would work on New Groove, you know. And we've not, we've got all the, you know, I love New Groove and that whole label, and we've got the whole catalogue. We've not released anything new on that label, but this record by Jovan, it's, it's two-track EP. It just sounds perfect for New Groove, you know. Um, at the same time, we had another record we signed in Moscow G that was um, on, I think it was on DFTD or The affected Record. So it's just about where it fits within the label group. You know, so
0: in in the final decision making, so people that understand this have never been able to get access to hearing you speak or someone from defected. Yeah, when the record comes to pecking order, when a record comes to you, do you are you the final go to to making that deal happen, or is it still has to be captained by the Simon Dunmore
1: in the end? Oh, I mean, look, ultimately, How's um, that <clears throat> Simon's at the top of this food chain. Um. So, yeah, I mean, ultimately, if he's not into the record, it's not going to get signed. No matter how much you love it. No, I think ultimately it's down to him. Unless it's like we can really prove that we should sign this record. But the one thing about Simon is he does know what he's talking about. That's the thing. I think that's why he's so good at what he does. He's got a really good nose and he can also see where the music scene is or it's going or what's happening. Um and try not to have too much of a, a knee-jerk reaction to what's going on in the marketplace, you know? And there's not many people like that. There's been times when I've had my doubts. So I kind of thought, God, you know, what's where's house music going because of what's going on with EDM? But um, I think with him, it's very much about he's always believed in songs and great songs will stand the test of time. So that's always the thing, isn't it? We always focus on vocal records. We'll put out some tech house tracks or some tracky bits, but it's very vocal-driven. Um, so, yeah, look, ultimately, he's got me into the record. I mean, sometimes there might be things that I want to sign. Obviously, for me, the labels that I'm supposed to go out and kill for is Big Love, it's Sulfuric, it's Glitterbox, um, and the other labels. Um, so I'll be really fighting the corner. But like I said, you know, ultimately, and I might have a bit more sway with some of those labels, but ultimately, he, it's, it's his call. Cool. It's his company.
0: On another note, as an artist now, Seamus Hodgey, the artist, how important is social media to your day to day? For people to understand, what that's
1: super like? important, yeah. Just, well, look for my what's job. Involved,
0: really what's involved? What's in your day to day with that? What you? Yeah,
1: doing? it's um, you're just checking all the time because it's good from an A and R point of view because people are trying to message me to send me music in lots of different ways, whether it's Facebook or on Twitter or on Instagram or you know. Um, is there any more That's see it really facebook twitter instagram do you make yeah.
0: little do you make little videos for tiktok
1: <laughs> i'm not on tiktok Me neither. No. <laughs> um but you know and it's all uh, also you know i follow people because i'm interested in what some of these new up and coming people are doing um so it's a good way to keep informed um but yeah it's really important then obviously from uh, promoting music on my label or the the in-house labels it's super important. So let's
0: yes. ask, let me let me go let me delve a little deeper now. So if you were the major label, like I know a lot of the major labels are looking at more statistics artistically from the from statistic as far as the um, the Facebook uh, not the not your personal page, more your artist page, Instagram yeah. followers. Is that really more important to you to signing a record, or is it based the music more important for you? Which one
1: is it? So I'll I'll be I'll be honest with you, right? If you had the choice
0: two, You have been honest. I love it.
1: If you have the choice of two records, very similar in what they do and you know what how you know what you think you're gonna sell and all the rest of it. Um and let's say they're two sort of new artists, they're cool records, they're not gonna be, you know, um hitting the charts that big, but they're cool records, but if one's got some action on social media and one hasn't, you'll go with the one who's got the action on social media. Just because there's a story, there's something to talk about. It might be their image. It might be the fact that they are DJing and they're recording it, or they're promoting their own club nights, or they've just got something. They've got something going on to add to the story. Whereas if it's like a completely new name, this is the thing, is the difference, you know, Big Bang Theory, when I did God's Child as BBT, nobody knew who was that, who that was. It didn't matter. It was just a good record that people latched onto it. But that was because the way music industry was and the way it was when you came to promote music. But now with online, you've got to be online.
0: Your presence must be there. You <clears throat> must yeah. have a good, strong presence. So when someone fresh is coming to you and they're presenting you a, a hot record, you want to make sure that they have all the social media statistics in the right places
1: correct all the boxes well look i'm just saying they don't have to right if it's if it's like an amazing record if it's hands down an amazing record um like i'm pretty sure when i don't know fella legrand did put your hands up for detroit i mean i'd never heard of him he might have been
0: i i know he's a dj
1: in 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 the netherlands right so he might have had a bit of name over there but none of us had heard of him when that record signed, that was like you could just hear that was going to be a big record, and it was signed. So, but it, yeah,
0: but that, but that was a transition where, say, you put a record on a Ministry of Sound had the power to push the record all the way without an artistic. Oh record. yeah,
1: yeah. But before that, it had been signed by an independent label. You know, Mark Brown he signed it for CR2. That's right. By a, an unknown name, and then deal, did the deal with Ministry, but. Um, I'm just saying that now if we got a record it was amazing by an unknown person we'd sign it but it's just if it's a record that's good record it's not gonna smash it but it's it's decent um but it's just if you've got the choice between two records because you can't sign every record sometimes you've got to go look we've got enough records lined up we're not going to sign another record to that imprint unless it's really killer so <clears throat> that's the thing if it's okay It could just be timing. Do you know what I mean? It's just just when you approach a label, it's like, depends how much they've got on the schedule. Um, Depends if they put out quite a few records already that sounded like that, that didn't perform that well. If the music scene is changing. So I'm just saying that I think if you're making music, it does help if you've got some online activity. That's what I'd say.
0: Good. No, because it's the truth. You know cuz you're in yeah. you know you're in a very important job dude. I don't give a shit what you tell me. You're in a very important job. You got to produce hit records from time to time. It's just the way we roll. Oh, Same yeah. with, with me. I, I got to come up with records that make sense to keep us to keep this machine going. Otherwise, you know, yeah. there's somewhat of commercial ability. You know, yeah. a lot of people don't understand that that are, are from our era or older than us. They don't really understand how important that social media is. They think yes it's still stuck on the old setup that you make a great record. That's just enough. Yes, at one time it was, and now it's not enough anymore. And I try to do yeah. stories. I try to explain this each and every time I talk to people that are sitting in those chairs, like what you're sitting in, <clears throat> that are making decisions that are important. You know, or you may sign the next 19 year old kid that's got the new sound. You don't yeah. know.
1: You don't one thing, that. Lenny. I, I I need to. Run to the men's room very quickly.
0: Run, I'll talk to the people. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, so I, I have to shout out. I've been seeing everybody. Marsha Carr, love you, girl. Richard Earnshaw. Man, a lot of people. We talked about you too, Richard. We told, we told everybody that you are a muso. So, you see how Seamus explains the sitting at defective records, how important it is that you still have to water and seed your. Social media, you know, do your postings one a day, like taking your vitamins. The same way you take your vitamins, do one posting, do an important posting. It's going to keep people communicating with you. It's always good to communicate with your audience. You're just starting out. Don't lose your ambition. If you're in this for the long haul, don't lose steam. Keep pushing. Work hard because damn it, I am. I take my vitamins every day. (laughs) and I want you all to do something that is going to keep this going because we all need you to make dance music and keep that dance music alive around the world because without all of you there'd be none of us there'd be no reason to have it defective there'd be no reason to have a strictly rhythm there would have been no reason to have bbc radio one if there was no listeners see my point so we need to keep keep supporting this system that we're in and yes I agree with Seamus. There's been huge, huge quantum leap changes that happened over time. And we needed to embrace those changes. I'll be honest, I was one that pushed back at the change. I hated when the whole analog business, as I remember, pressing vinyl, pressing physical CDs. I've said this over and over, but I also embraced the social media and I I also understand Spotify. And Spotify is not an easy thing to crack. It's a new thing. It's looking for the youngest of everybody that's around. You know, we all, we're all we all pushing Spotify. And we all want to, you know, have our records streaming high levels because we all want to keep working in our fields and stay in it. And Seamus had to go to the loo and come back.
1: Oh, man. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Welcome back, Seamus. We won't have it too much longer that's because okay. we're almost going close to the two-hour mark. But yeah. I always ask this one big question. She, the older Seamus is talking to the young man Seamus. Okay. What's the mistake you tell him not to make? What would you tell him not to do? Um <clears throat> you know, give him the advice he needs. Looking at the time capsule.
1: Yeah. Mm. <clears throat> um I think maybe I don't know. I think there was a time when um with Big Love, there was a time we were, I was approached by Ministry of Sound to do a label deal when it was all going really well. Um, so, I want you know, sometimes I sort of wonder if I should have done that deal because it would just would have elevated the label and it would have been plugged into a bigger label. This was around 2004, I think. Um, so sometimes I, I wonder about that. Um, but also, I guess... If I was going to give myself some advice as on a on a broader level, it, it probably would have been to just be a bit more collaborative. So it was all great doing what I did with Big Love and <clears throat> doing my own thing, but I think at some time I probably should have done releases on other labels um, or collaborate collaborating with other people. Just, just spread it out a little bit more. Have, if, just think a bit more laterally. It's very easy to be in your own lane. I think there's people today that do that. I can see people that... <clears throat> set up their own label and they're doing their own thing and they might have a certain amount of success, but I just think strength in numbers sometimes. And it's good to, you know, it's good to connect with other cliques and other um, communities and other labels or whatever, like just connecting with other people. And I think that's a good thing. Spread your wings a bit more. Amazing. Yeah.
0: damn Seamus, you're the man, bro. (laughs) But you know what? Here's the last most and final question. You know, we know you we know everything's on pause right now. So what is the plans when this thing turns around and we're allowed to come out and play? What is the plan of action that you're going to be doing as far as gigging, as far as the record label? What's coming up in front? I know we're all dreaming. Share a little bit of that. But where are we going?
1: So I mean, look, just p- talking from a personal point of view, you know, it's like, um, uh, I mean, actually, I did get an email yesterday with my with a be, you know, I have got some dates for a beefer next year, and um, we're doing four to the floor in room two at Eden on Friday. So the effect is in the main room, and then we've got four to the floor in the second room, <clears throat> which is obviously a bit more uh, um, old school, classic house, I guess. Um. And that should have all been running this summer. So that's the first time I've actually had some dates come through, um, which is good. It's something to look forward to. And we've got Defected Croatia as well. Um, But in amongst that, you know, on a personal level, I want to be making records again. I've just had like, I've just been stuck in this room for months. I couldn't get in the studio with vocalists. It's been really difficult. I've actually, one of the tracks I was working, I've had to get the vocalists to record the vocals in their own studio and send it to me, which don't really like doing i like to be in the studio with the with the singer right but i just need to make music now and get stuff out and also when i make records <clears throat> especially the records i'm making um i did one on big love recently um called a better place with kathy brown you know and um making those records isn't cheap you know because i'm i've got the vocalists to look after i've got live musicians like brass uh, guitar, whatever, strings, all that stuff. Um so it costs money to make those records. And I've got records now that, you know, could be for glitter box, it could be for big love. Um, but it all takes investment. And it's that time and in investment where normally you'd get to go and do the dig, you get the gigs and you get the benefit of, of um running off the back of that. But now it's more like making those those records, but not even getting to play them in the clubs. And I don't know when I'll be sort of DJing off the back of those records but it's I think it's important if you make music to keep putting music out there obviously it's good to keep your profile up but I think if you make music that's what you do because you want to make music and I'm I'm got some other tracks some other records I'm working on where hopefully I think Mike Dunn's going to work on one of them um so I'm just getting really busy now um for me personally to make more music and invest in those records so not just like Throwaway records, just records that should stand the test of the time. You know, really good songs, really good music. Um, working with creative, talented people, which is what I've always done, you know. And I think come next year, um, I mean, what we're doing as a label is that we can't really put out those records that just we used to call them weekend records. Those records that we used to go in the record shop, you know, they'd sell in the record shop for one or two weekends, because they were just club tracks. And we can't, as a company, really be throwing out loads of tracks like that because <clears throat> there are no clubs open.
0: That's the problem. There's yeah. no club scene. That's
1: There's the no problem. club scene. So what we're trying to do now is put out music um, that's got more longevity to it, that's so, probably more song-based.
0: So the Billy Porter record, the Shapeshifters record, how's that been doing for the company?
1: Oh, yeah, amazing. I mean, like, obviously his profile is going through the roof. Um, and that was just bizarre because he just contacted us. He just said, I want to make a record on Glitterbox." Oh really? Was, yeah. That's how it happened. We didn't, he just, he just approached us. He, he heard some stuff on the label loved it. And, you know, he had a record deal years ago, I think with BMG or someone he had, a, uh, like he was doing R and B, um, a long time ago. And, um, yeah, I think he just felt like he wanted to be making music and we felt, felt like the right fit. And then we just said, right, we'll put him together with shapeshifters and um, and finally ready happened. It was just really quick. It, it was quite amazing. Um, so that record's done really well and the pro, his profile's amazing. We're still working the record. You know, we've just done, um, Demeter from Paris has done these remixes, which are amazing. Um, adding his strings and um, we're doing vinyl on that as well. So we just noticed that um, what we've noticed as a company is where people aren't spending money going out clubbing, they're actually spending money on records and on merchandise. So we're now our our sales, when it comes to vinyl, is just gone. It's just ridiculous. Um, so we're doing more of that now. We're not even on certain releases. We're not doing CDs like certain albums. We're just doing vinyl. Um, that's where the interest is. So. We've just noticed the way the music, the, mo- the music model has changed with the way that we're doing it. So, so downloads are obviously selling less because there's less people DJing. Um, streaming has just gone ridiculous because everyone's streaming music. Right. And they're spending money on uh, merchandise and, <clears throat> and vinyl. And until we can be doing events again, which won't be until next year, we've just got to focus on the music.
0: Now, is that providing that, because Spain said they will not open their big clubs until they have vaccination? Is that is this just per maybe question mark or is this we're just going on with the hopes of next year?
1: Yeah, I th- I think we just got to be in a really different place um, before the big events take place. I mean, obviously, if we do the de- defective creation, you're talking about 5000 people, you know,
0: yeah. um, and do something like that without having some sort of c- control.
1: Yeah, I think things have got to change a lot before then. But we're, we're hopeful and optimistic about that. Um, but, you know, that's one part of our company. One part of our company is events, the other part is music. And we're music-led first. So it all comes from the music. We wouldn't have events if it wasn't the music. So we just need to focus on the music and put out stuff that's going to last. And, um, you know, like, for example, I signed an album from um, Miguel Mix, which is coming on Sulfuric Deep. And, we, you know, they've never done an album on Sulfuric before. But... The music he's making is kind of, it's listening music. It's stuff that's going to stream. It's stuff that gets played in restaurants or bars. and right. or,
0: it's, it's luxury music.
1: Yeah. So, you know, when I heard this album, I was like, right, that's it's amazing. Oh, and he's got... done. Yeah, done. done. He's got some amazing... A it's a no-brainer. 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 So that was, this is like the perfect time because, oh, he was, when I was talking to him about it a few months ago, he's like, you sure it's really laid back? I said, this is the perfect time you to release that music because there's no there's no club scene so we're kind of making records that work like that as well especially um certain new disco stuff that's a bit slower like 115 116 bpm um again it's that stuff that lends itself more to being listening listened to you know it's not just about the club so um but we're not trying to put out overtly commercial um Poppy Records I mean we we do get stuff sent to us now by producers that normally make underground music and they're making stuff that's really pretty commercial um and not not the commercial that we would do not that we do stuff that that's commercial but I think people are um trying to change the way the way they make music because of what's going on yeah you know
0: yeah no I know just you know what we just got to hope to pray that we can get this back soon because the other yeah. question everybody's asking is when this is over, who's coming back? You know, because the longer this goes, the harder yeah. it gets. To people, they have to, you know. I'm, I'm reading every day, and I know you see it too. People writing, musicians are leaving the field. There's yeah. a lot of different parts of our industry that the restaurant slash entertainment field has been decimated due yeah. to the situation of COVID. So, how long do you think people can stay waiting and hoping? They, they're yeah, in different, different
1: jobs, you know? That, that is difficult. I mean, people are going to be falling by the wayside, you know? Um, there will be some casualties, yeah. And I think that people who are making music, I just think if you make music, if you're a producer, you have to just diversify now, which is what a lot of people probably should have done before, which is like, yeah, look, make those club records. Well, why, why not try and make records that will also stream well, that might have a little bit more commercial factor to them? Um, you know, if you're making tech house bangers, <clears throat> you yeah, have
0: no dance floor.
1: There's nothing going on, right? You should, so you need you to start should. thinking, do you want to make a living out of this? You might have to start diversifying, even if you set up another moniker, or you produce for people, or you know, you try and make music that's gonna to sync to get into the world of licensing and TV and that sort of thing. So, or you know, there's people I know that are producing music that they also master for people, or they'll do some ghost production or you know vocal production just like if you're a person that makes music and can produce and you've got those skills then obviously you can divert diversify if you're a dj that's got no studio skills and normally pays an engineer to make your records for you it's a difficult time
0: i know no, no, you're right brother
1: yeah well we
0: got an election happening very soon our higher ups are telling us that we have a miracle drug coming right before election the right. vaccination. <laughs> and I kind of laugh at it. I try to say it with such without laughing, but it kind of is funny. If a vaccination happens, are you taking it, Seamus?
1: Um, I don't. I have to, I've conversation. Like,
0: uh, Everybody's asking right now.
1: Yeah, I, do you know what? I kind of take each day as it comes because that's just the way I am. Like the way the way this has all been going on, I've not been sort of like hoping that the clubs would open. I like mean, when this first happened in March, I didn't think, oh, you know, fingers crossed we'll be in a beef this summer. I just, thought,
0: oh, <laughs> yeah, I know, right?
1: We're not going to be in a beef. So I tend to look at the worst case scenario and anything else that happens is a bonus. So when we talk about a vaccination, I'm probably quite skeptical about it happening in the near future. So I kind of think. If it happens, it's a bonus. And if it happens, I probably would take it. Yeah. If it's if it's if it's better for everybody else, if we all take it and it helps the situation, I think it's a good thing.
0: Here's my problem, bro. I gotta travel ten hours to get to you in a tin can. So I yeah. gotta be with people sitting inside an airplane. That's to just to come to you, and then we can go to a visa. Yeah. I don't know what the hell to do. I don't know what to do.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like,
0: I'm like, you really think I'm going to take in November? They're coming out with the first ones. Are you out of your mind? No, not November. Maybe wait. I'll have to wait to see. But we can only God speed and pray that this will turn around very quickly. Because I need for all of us to be able to get through this because we need this industry to go on and on and on. There's no way this is going to end here. It ain't going to end now. I invested too much like you. We've all invested too much of our money, time, love, energy, sweat, blood, and tears for this thing to die. Yeah. I got more hit records left in me, goddammit. it. And I know you do too. There's no way. I can't thank you enough, Mr. Seamus. Haji, you are a gentleman, a scholar. <laughs> you are a road warrior. You taught us well picked up some great records in your time. You've done some amazing things. More than I even realized. And thank you for sharing all that. Um, thank you. My greatest accomplishment is my daughter. My greatest yeah. accomplishment is my daughter. I guess you would feel the same my children do. Oh, your God, kids, yeah. Your kids are, are your diamonds. I know that. Yeah. I know you've always been a great father. 100%. Are they following, any of them following in your footsteps? That was the last question I had.
1: Well, funnily enough, because I'm not that sort of person to force my kids. I always wanted them to find their own way. So, um, you know, my oldest son is into music, but he was kind of into music, but also into film.
0: Okay.
1: I was like, okay, listen, maybe go the film way. So he's kind of got into doing film studies and he's very much into politics. The younger son is very much into maths and um, that's his, he's a maths boffin. Um, but my daughter, the oldest one, is 28, um, I used to say to her years ago, like, listen, you know, if you, want, if you want to get into the music industry, I'm sure I could maybe introduce you oh, to some people.
0: Her mother's a DJ. Her father's yeah. a DJ. I know Marsha.
1: Yeah. come on. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So she but she was like, no, oh, you know, I'm just doing my thing. And up, it, was, it was last year she said to me, oh, dad, you know, I want to get into the music industry. And that was because she just organically had got into reviewing um albums and music so she's very much into like rap uk hip-hop grime and all that stuff and um she just started doing these review programs on her own or with other people and she went on different channels and youtube so she's very she's really into it um and i said okay go for it and then she just she she plugged away to try and get a job and now she's um marketing assistant at warner records in the uk yeah so i'm like i'm super proud of her because she she took her a long time to get that job, and she just got an award God from the official, the official charts in the UK for a number one album for marketing. Um, there's an artist called Nines, and he's got the, the number one yeah, album. What's
0: the UK number now? one album now? What? How many? What's? How many units or how many streams? Is it I can't the- remember how many
1: units, but the award she got. It's not like I mean I've got discs on my wall here, which we we'll all have from sales, but these aren't. This isn't sales based. This award she's got is the fact that. It's just based on the fact that the album went to number one. I'm not sure on the figures. i will have to research that. Okay. Um, well, but cool. I, I'm, 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 I'm super proud of her. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, with all my kids, it's, I, I want them to be happy and, and and follow their own path, you know. But it's just coincidental that she's finally got into that and she's, uh, she's at a good place.
0: Music moguls we all create. <laughs> We're keep on going and keep on Miss Seamus' daughter. Oh, wow.
1: Yeah, she does no, like, look like me.
0: Look like I mean, I saw, I saw Simon's kid, Lewis. I was like, look at this. I remember when these kids, when, they, when his wife was pregnant, it's like, wow, yeah. they're growing up. They're, they're serving me a beer. Yeah. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> holy smoke. I'm like, wow. Yeah. But I also, you know hung out with everybody. I'm like, man, as time went by. I know. Damn time. This, and that's the thing. It just doesn't stop. No. It just doesn't stop. But. Anything else you want to shout out before I say ta ta for now?
1: Um because you covered yeah, a lot. You covered a lot. Yeah, hell. we covered a lot, man. No, I'm all, all I'll end up doing is I'll just start promoting records. Turn
0: the so just... um turn the camera to the to the discs. Let people see the discs. All right.
1: Yeah, yeah. Show everyone. Well, that's some of them. That's it's the
0: records, a... but what about the sales awards? The gold sales and
1: the oh they're sales. up here.
0: Show everybody. Yeah.
1: They're up. Can you see them? There's some of them.
0: Soak it up, mate. Soak
1: it yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. Look. I mean, they're sort of like Roger Sanchez that went to number one. Then there's oh, another chance,
0: right? Another
1: yeah. chance record. Yeah, because we all worked on that record at the time. That was our first number one, it affected. Yeah. So, a um, few discs on the wall. That's the wall of ego.
0: Blood, ego. The wall of ego. It's right? brawn. It's strength. <laughs> <laughs> People are sending you hearts like crazy. I'm watching the hearts come up.
1: Oh, that's good.
0: So next week we got Mark Lower from France. Mark. Lower from France. Oh, France. Nice fast, we got Mark Lower from France. Yeah. We got some amazing, amazing talent coming on every Wednesday. Same place for damn sake. It's at seven o'clock. I tell you all week, I am monotonous with this. I tell you all week, seven o'clock tune in. Don't come at eight. You lose an hour and you got to come back and rerun the show. People coming in late. Oh, I missed half of it. Shame on you. Seamus was important. Should have been there at (laughs) seven (laughs) o'clock. But again, Mark Lowe, I want to thank Seamus Haji. Good luck to him and his children. I'm Uh glad to hear his daughter is marketing executive at Warners. That's an amazing title to have. And Lord knows where that's going to go. You don't know when she could be someday chairman of the board. You never know. <laughs> and our friends have gone from the record shop to become the MDs of some of these labels, as we yeah. all know. Yeah, yeah, Crazy. It's crazy. but Okay, Mr. Seamus Haji, have a great night. And thank you again. And please keep us in the loop of all the new productions and remixes you're doing because, Right here, I'm playing all over the radio, still rocking shows, simulcasting, and making sure I'm still playing. The first most important job that I do is promote. and promote good music.
1: All right. I will send you some music.
0: Thank you, Seamus. All and right. I'm going to ask you for Miguel Miggs, because we want to get Miguel Miggs on here too. So I'm going to ask you for that. I'll have Karen ask you for that.
1: Okay. He's a all lovely right. chap. Yeah, man. Yes.
0: Yeah, I would love to get him on. Thank you again. Have a okay. great night, everyone. Thank you for tuning in. We'll see you all next week for Mark Lower. Take care. Good night.